This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Hub of the morning to you. Walking you through another day on this great earth. I'm telling you, life is good. It could be so much worse. Trump could be in New Mexico making fun of the governor of New Mexico. Holy cow, he came in like a wrecking ball. I came in like a wrecking ball. We got a lot to talk about with the Donald today, uh, including... Is there any way, if Hillary Clinton, for example, could be stealing uh, primary delegates from um, Bernie Sanders, is it possible that in the big election that, that Donald Trump could actually lose electoral votes by the states voting against him, even if he wins the popular vote? The Electoral College is, do you remember? Hello, Bush Gore. It's crazy. So we're going to be talking with Derek Mueller, um, a professor at Pepperdine University in their law school there, and he's going to walk us through um, the Electoral College and help us understand what's going on there. Because for many, if you know, your state could actually vote against the person you voted for. They could send electoral uh, – what do they call them? Candidates, electoral vote – I don't know what they call the title of an electoral college member to go vote against the person you voted in the popular as in the popular vote, mm, which means Trump could actually, if he got that far, could have the election stolen. Hmm. Or he just ties it up in lawsuits and it goes on till summer of right. 2017. And then loses. And then – or wins, he depending goes to Mar-a-Lago. on the you know undivided or the divided Supreme Court. Or Hillary Clinton could do the exact same thing. And I'm telling you, she's organized. Oh, my gosh. Interesting stuff. We'll be talking about the Electoral College and uh, its impact potentially on the final election. I'm telling you, that's how you nominate a president. That's how you elect a president, folks. So we'll get to that. We also um, – We'll be doing a lot of headlines today as well. But first, let's get to the, the local or the U.S. headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country? Thanks, Matt. Protests at the Donald Trump rally in New Mexico turned violent Tuesday night in Albuquerque at the, near the Albuquerque Convention Center, where the candidate was holding his rally. Demonstrators broke through police barriers, hurled, hurled burning Make America Great Again t-shirts, bottles, rocks, and officers in riot gear who responded with pepper spray and smoke grenades. Here's some sound. The glass on the arena's front doors were shattered by protesters inside the rally. The candidate was interrupted by protesters holding Trump as a fascist banners, and one woman was dragged out by security. According to local police, several officers were treated for injuries after being hit by rocks. One mm. reported arrest. 
in the wow. situation. The video is fun to watch. After weeks of speculation, House Speaker Paul Ryan will endorse his party's presumptive presidential nominee, according to unidentified senior Trump campaign sources who are talking to ABC huh. News. Ryan is the highest-ranking Republican official, and as his endorsement would widely be seen as a sign that the Republican Party is uniting. After its divisive primary, the, the Trump source did not say when this endorsement would happen, but uh, ABC News notes that Ryan is has a weekly press briefing today. If he does not endorse Trump, then certainly he'll be asked about it. Hmm. The Department of Justice will seek the death penalty for Dylan Roof, the 22-year-old who shot and killed nine people at a predominantly black Charleston church last year. The nature of the alleged crime and the resulting harm compelled this decision, Attorney General Loretta Lynch wrote in a DOJ statement on the decision. And finally, the National Football League announced host cities for the 2019 through 2021 Super Bowls on Tuesday. I know you're making your plans. Can hardly wait. Get there. The announcement reveals the Super Bowl 53 will take place in Atlanta in 2019, and 2020 will be in Miami, and 20 or the Super Bowl 55 in 2021 will be in Los Angeles. Woo! Next year's in Houston, so make your plans. Uh, the hardest part about that was converting all the Roman numerals that yeah. the NFL insists on keeping it's that time. nobody knows yeah, about. Nobody understands. Yeah, it was and and uh, Super Bowl twenty one, which I'm is not even Roman in Los Angeles, is Super Bowl fifty five. Do you know what the Roman numeral for that is? Uh, fifty five would be a W. No, L V. So all the reports, when oh, it goes wow. Super Bowl LV, you're Las Vegas? Oh, Las Vegas. I love Las and Vegas. And then it says, I was totally confused yesterday. Why is it in Las Super Vegas Bowl and LV. Los Angeles? What's going on? Yeah, what are they doing? Did you hear this news? Kate, what do you think Snapchat is worth? Billions. Great. About a $20 billion valuation. Yeah. $20 billion for Snapchat. Guess how many employees? couple hundred? 30. 30, really? Okay. What? I know people have tried to buy it. Oh, by the way, all of them probably under 30. Yeah. Companies have tried to buy it, but they keep backing off because they, they, they feel that they can be bigger, for, you know, for an app that started out by sending inappropriate pictures to each other. Yeah. That's remember. That's when we had to <laughs> but, stop Ben. But now they've added stories. And they've added uh, news uh, like partners who make content yeah. for the site. I'm, I'm on Snapchat. Right. Sure. And I don't want to stop sending me the pictures. I know. It's weird. Knock it off. But uh, it's interesting. I have no idea what to do with it. I sent there play with the little, little filters. We play with them, my kid, and he likes how it messes with his face. Pretty but other much than that, after every show, I call in uh, Kaylee to my office. Yes. And for about seven minutes, she tries to show me how to watch her Snapchat mm. videos. And then I forget, and then I take my nap. I follow the NBA because I don't necessarily have time to sit down and watch all the games for the playoffs oh, you that follow are going it on, on Snapchat. Yeah, so as you're watching, they, they take you through the pregame and go through the game, and you see some plays, and then you oh. see some postgame, and then you get a final score, and it takes you about two, three minutes to, to watch it all, and you're done. That's, you know what? Where would we be? We'd, I'd actually watch a game. Yeah, I would too. For two hours instead of. I watched of, the game last night, but then it was so disappointing. Why? Because. Because you're rooting for Golden State I want for no Golden reason. Golden State to win. Why? Because I love Steph Curry. Don't you like when the big guy gets knocked off? No. Why? Because it reminds me of the Jazz. What? Mm-hmm. Actually, just because your team is horrible. OKC doesn't mean... reminds me of the Jazz in their heyday. Okay. 
but they're actually going to get to an NBA Finals and win well, if they so, well, get there. Well, we'll see. They're going to have to get through Cleveland. You think? It's mm. tied. What if they have to get through Toronto? No. Won't that be exciting to watch Toronto <sighs> play for a Toronto. title? It won't be Toronto. <laughs> Can't be Toronto. Hey, uh, Donald Trump, holy Hannah. He, you can't go to New Mexico and majorly offend the governor of New Mexico that is the f- female, uh-huh. Hispanic, and? Uh, head of the Haven't Republican Governors Association. And I don't know if you heard, was one of his potential running mates. Not anymore. Holy cow. He just, he just made that elimination. Syrian refugees. All eh. in one sentence. Oh. None of which should be a surprise to you. No, it's not. It just seems like he he, he needs some women. Did you see any of the footage of, of the rally? Uh, yeah, it's just it, it's smaller. They say than the L.A. Southern Cal riots. I don't know. He said it was huge. Huge. Those are huge riots. Huge. Yeah, but play clip three. Just, just play clip three. You can get them out. Get them out. Oh, isn't that nice? I'd get him out of here. Go home to mommy. He can't get a date, so he's doing this instead. How old is this? Get out of here. Still wearing diapers. Hecklers. Who? Donald? No, people got into the rally and started trying to. Donald sounded like the heckler. But, I mean, he's back in his primary form. Yeah. He's back like he was running against 17 Ladies people. Ladies and gentlemen, President of the United States. The guy that went out there to, to kind of warm up the crowd, the warm-up act? Yeah. He went out there. I think he's a lawyer from New Mexico. He gets out there and he goes, it would be great if Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were in a boat and then it sank. Wow. And then he made just a horrible comment about Bill Clinton and Hillary oh. and that whole mess. And it's just... That's how you warm up the crowd. You just say some things that are, I mean, come on. Don't wish for people to die. Yeah, a lot of times you just have like a comedian go out there. He was trying. Warm them up, but they just had some person talk bad about everybody. Yeah, he just put everyone down for five, six minutes and Donald Trump. You know. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> well, that's why today's guest is going to be so interesting because he may be teaching everybody – how if even if Donald goes through the convention, gets the nomination from the GOP, and w- looks like he's going to win the general election with the popular vote, there's still hope. There's there's two more things that can three more things that could still happen. You could still turn him away with the electoral college. We'll learn about that today. Hmm. B, uh, pray for a tsunami that yeah. would uh, engulf the entire country. Okay. Or J. J. Uh huh. Because I had to eliminate others. Um, <laughs> Quite a few, apparently. Uh, or Jay, just everybody has to move to Canada. Hmm. <sighs> it's kind of a sad day now. <laughs> oh well. So um, we, today's Greek Pride Day, right? So what do you do for Greek Pride Day? No geek. Oh, it says geek. It's not Greek. It's I'm because no I was all excited to go get a a uh, yeah, I, a uh, euro. You said Greek, and I was like, no, he didn't say that. He didn't. And then you said it again. I'm like, well, I don't no. want. I don't want it's to geek, celebrate Geek Pride Day. Geek Pride Day because we already yeah, we celebrate yeah. that every day. Here. Absolutely. Is that why you put that on there? Yeah, of course. Oh, brother. No. 
<laughs> it's on Geek Pride Day. I, I was hoping for a little uh, Euro today, a little. You could still go buy a Euro. Nothing stopping you. Salad. Don't do that. That's good. Nasty. Uh, today, uh, Geek World or Geek Pride Day, which is worldwide celebration of nerddom. Yep. There may be meetups or parties to celebrate nerds. Actually, usually you'll just see a bunch of people playing video games. Hey, chill Alert, out. nerd. Just because it's fun. In one room. Chill out. Did you just say chill out? Yeah, just chill out. How old are you? I'm old enough. Okay, explain this to me. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you know, the NRA is big on everybody having a right to have a gun. Yes. Right? And even like, let's you got to be able to take your guns into schools. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be gun-free zones because that's how people die. Now, Donald Trump at their convention said he's going to eliminate all no or gun-free zones as he spoke in a gun-free zone. Right. Isn't that weird? Yeah. There's no guns allowed at the NRA convention. I think we ought to test it in Donald's uh, – all of his big <laughs> events. <laughs> Everybody bring your guns. You, you here's the deal though. You can't take knives to the NRA Association's Gun Expo in Kentucky. No, it's a knife-free zone. Yes, guns apparently you can have. No knives. Not in the convention. Not in the convention. No. But you can. It's also knife-free. Yeah, there's no weapons allowed at the NRA convention, which is hard because a lot of those guys have some seriously nice blades. Yes, that's kind of the point of the gathering. Is Thousands are attending the convention where Republican presidential nomination nominee Donald Trump spoke. But uh, chairman of the advocacy group's (laughs) Knife Rights, Doug Ritter, said he was happy to help the NRA. So he said a check-in tent for those with knives. Yeah, just check them in. Come back Uh, again later. It's not a knife. It's a machete. (laughs) Can we take machetes in? I'm sorry, sir. That blade is uh, way too long. Okay. He says there's some reason why the Secret Service just isn't comfortable with knives. I don't get it. And it's probably because there's a presidential candidate there. Well, it's probably because they're a government bureaucracy trying to control people. No, the Secret Service would really like their presidential candidates not to be around weapons. <laughs> they're supposed to protect them, and so they want to limit weapons around these people. At a convention. Yes. Supporting and the, celebrating gun culture. At the NRA Rifle or the National Rifle Association's Gun Expo Convention. Yeah. How many knives do you think they'd have to check in? Like, I mean, it's just what? Let's just say there's even 20,000 people at this huge convention. Yeah. Let's just say that. I don't know the exact numbers. How many knives would you have to check in? I read there were 70,000 over the weekend. Oh, the whole weekend. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, so this makes more sense. There was only 3,000 knives checked in. <laughs> How many people are still packing knives? The funny thing is that was only 500 people. Yeah. Six knives a person. <laughs> Can't you see the guy like taking out all of his weapons? A woman dumping out her purse. Five okay, knives um, This out. is a grenade. The pin is still in the grenade, but I'd like that back. It's safe, but, you know, it's special. It's, <laughs> it's a family heirloom. What's that jar? It's a jar of napalm. Don't worry about it. Well, yeah, welcome so, to the show. So the, the story was like... You know, 3,000 wow. knives. And I'm like, well, yeah, but you just told me 70,000 people came in that weekend. <laughs> How many knives did you miss? Are you guys taking tasers? They're, so they had the TSA manning the gate is what we're telling us here, right? Yeah, okay. pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. The sad thing is you got frisked and all that stuff, but you never even got to go on an airplane. What a letdown. Oh, what's happening to this country? Anyway, Folks, we got a great show for you. Lots of fun still ahead. Uh, 
We are going to be talking to Derek Moeller in just a few moments. We'll take a break, come back. He's going to talk to us about the Electoral College. Um, first of all, he's going to explain it to us so we understand the real truth behind it. Let's be really clear. You actually aren't voting for the president. You're voting – I mean, eventually it's Electoral College that will nominate your president or elect your president. So they'll teach us the great lessons behind that. Also, uh, it also may be the last fail gap stop to stop a presidential candidate that you don't like, whether it's Hillary Clinton or uh, Donald Trump. Stick with us, folks. Electoral College 101 is up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are talking Electoral College today. So when you think about it, you, you've heard in uh, just in the primary elections all of these arguments about uh, Hillary Clinton being able to uh, steal away some of the delegates from Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump thinking the whole system is rigged. Well, when we get to the general election, we got to remember that the way a president is elected is through the Electoral College, right? By the Constitution. So uh, we're, we got to understand how this Electoral College works, or we might also start to think that, hey, something's weird. Something's awry in this system, especially because it really is plausible that you could have the Electoral College go against the uh, the the general election winner with the most votes, right? Huh. So we've uh, found an article that was called The Electoral College Could Still Stop Trump Even If He Wins the Popular Vote, uh, written by um, Derek Muller. And he is going to uh, – he's joining us today. Uh, he's a professor from um, Pepperdine University and has uh, proposed a creative solution to the Never Trump movement. His solution, the Electoral College. He joins us now from Malibu to walk us through his, uh, his, his solution and also to help us better understand the Electoral College. Derek Mueller, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you being with us today, Derek. It's a uh, – when I think about the whole George Bush – and uh, just the fiasco that that came down with Al Gore, and you know the everybody's fighting for the hanging chads. It could be chaos if uh, if we don't have a pretty good understanding of the electoral college. Talk to us, teach us about uh, this. Your article that you wrote in the Washington Post. How could the electoral college actually end up, uh, you know, removing the 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 candidate that had won the most votes? Sure. Well, let's start with a little primer, because I think maybe some people forget about the Electoral College because, or, or don't understand right. how it works, right? Yeah. Um, 
So we have 538 presidential electors. That is, each state gets at least three electors this election. Uh, you get the number of electors for the number of senators you have and the number of members in the House of Representatives. So Utah, for instance, has two senators and four members in the House of Representatives. So we get six electors. Yeah. So when we, when we go to the polls this November, we vote for a presidential candidate. Um, but we're actually voting for a slate of electors. And in November, then, the person who gets the most votes in each state, that slate of electors will gather in December. And that group of electors casts a vote for president and casts a vote for vice president. And they send those votes to Congress. And in Congress, it adds up the total. And it sees who has the most among the 538. And if somebody gets to 270, they're named the president of the United States and the vice president. But mm. Um, we don't, so we are indirectly electing the president through these electors, but there are lots of ways that that, that process can sort of get stopped in, along the way. One is, and this is the one I talk about a little bit in the article, but there are other ways. One is to say that state legislatures have the decision about who chooses presidential electors. At the founding, a lot of states didn't vote for uh, the president. A lot of legislatures just said, you know what, we're going to pick our own electors and they're going to go and vote for the president of the United States. And a couple of other times that's happened too. So if you don't like your options and you're a state legislature, you can say, look, maybe we'll just pick electors and we'll pick electors who are actually going to vote for somebody else. Oh, wow. Because the, the electors don't have to vote the way the state voted. That's another option too, right? So we, we most many states have their electors take a pledge or a promise that says, well, we're going to really support the person who we're pledged to support, right? We're committed to Hillary Clinton or we're committed to Donald Trump and we're really going to promise it. And a few states have, have a law in place that tries to enforce that. It says in December, if you fail to vote for the right person, we're going to remove you from office and replace you. But that's never been enforced before. And there are many, many times in history where we've had what we call faithless electors. The electors show up in December and say, well, you know what? I don't like either of these people. Uh, I'm voting in 1980. It was an instance where somebody said, I'm not voting for Ronald Reagan. I'm voting for John Anderson. And they just choose to vote for whoever they want. Wow. That's never made a difference. It's never changed the outcome of an election, but it remains a possibility out there. And it could um, – I mean that – especially with kind of the Never Trump movement. I mean Utah is actually a really weird example. We only have six electoral college votes apparently, but um, Donald Trump took third in our state. Right. And Mitt Romney now lives in Utah as kind of the never Trump guy, even though there's more and more support coming out of Utah toward Trump. I mean, all of a sudden you could not carry a state. If this just happened to one state, it could happen to Texas. You talk about the impact Texas could play. Right. So uh, Texas is a large state. And I think if a Republican wants to win the presidency today, they, they pretty much have to win Texas. Texas has a significant chunk of those electoral votes, 38 electoral votes. Um, and if, if Texas, for instance, throws its support to somebody else, right? if those 38 electors are all pledged to support a different candidate, a third-party candidate, well, there's a really good chance that maybe nobody gets to 270 electoral votes. It's not a plurality that wins. You have to get a majority. You have to get to 270 votes. And if nobody gets to a majority, then we have an even more confusing process called a contingent election, and oh it's thrown to the House of Representatives. And this has only happened twice in the United States before. The top three vote-getters are presented to the House of Representatives, those three presidential candidates, and then the House of Representatives votes, and they vote state by state. So there are 50 states. They get 50 votes. They all vote together. 
and they get to decide among those three who the president of the United States is. So it could be Donald Trump. They could decide that it's going to be Hillary Clinton, or they wow. could decide it's this third person who has only 38 electoral votes from Texas, and you never know what's going to happen if that's the case. That is Oh, that would be destructive to the country. <laughs> that would be crazy. But, you know, that's it's plausible. I mean, because it's also plausible that, um, you know, something could happen with Hillary Clinton in this whole process that taints her, but she stays in the election. That's right. I, I think that that's one reason why we, we like a little bit of flexibility in right. the process, right? That there's a lot that can happen between now and the conventions, I think, on the Democratic side. There are lots of things that can happen before the general election. And then I think people might get uncomfortable if somebody is elected and perhaps indicted. Oh, yeah. Perhaps, you know, and so the, when the Electoral College meets in December, they're going to have more information. Now, usually they just are sort of expressing the will of the people, right? They're rubber stamping the results in November. But in an election cycle that's been as bizarre as ours has been in the last few few months uh, mm-hmm. you know, almost anything is possible this december well as a as a you know as a professor who and a and a and a lawyer i mean could we handle this like it would disenfranchise so many people um and what what would happen yeah, so I think I, I think that it is a little disconcerting for people to think once they sort of see the man behind the curtain, they get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. They, they get nervous seeing how the electoral college actually works. So in two thousand, I think there's no question there were a number of of problematic things going on. One was you have Florida decided by a few hundred votes, mm-hmm. which gives um, George W. Bush. Uh, just over 270 electoral votes, so it's this razor-thin margin, in a decision that the Supreme Court has to step in and by a 5-4 vote gives the ultimate outcome, and an election in which Al Gore wins more than half a million more popular votes nationwide. And so people look at sort of a lot of those factors and say, boy, this doesn't really seem like the process that I sort of signed up for. (laughs) But, you know, in the United States, we have 50 states. They are running 50 elections on Election Day. The polls open and close at different times. Your ballot might have Libertarian or Green Party or Constitution Party candidates, or they might have none of them. Uh, You might have to show a voter ID at the polls. Certain people are eligible to vote or ineligible to vote. So we have sort of 50 different elections around the country, and the Electoral College does a nice job of saying, we're running all these separate elections and let's sort of bring it together into one pot. Mm. At the same time, I think we all expect that we show up on Election Day and we vote for these candidates and the electors are going to carry out the will of the people. Um, so if there's an overwhelming preference from the people on Election Day, then I, I think it's unlikely that electors are somehow going to sort of deny that will. Uh, yeah. but, you know, it, it remains a possibility. But then I guess – so if it, if it ended up becoming a contingent election, it went to Congress. Congress, let's say, votes in the third person with the least amount of votes. <laughs> and um, that – yeah, the third – let's just say potentially – I mean, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Hypothetically, a uh, somebody from the Texas nominated or whatever. Um, then – there would obviously be lawsuits, and then it would eventually make it to the Supreme Court, which would again have to decide. 
Right. Um, I, I, yes, I would think so. I, I think the court would feel pretty confident that Congress has the power to do that, right? That right. Congress can choose the third-ranked person. You know, a good. You know, sometimes we we forget some of the amazing history we've had uh, in some of these presidential elections. In 1824, we had this battle between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson gets the most electoral college votes, but he doesn't have a majority. So the election goes to Congress. John Quincy Adams engages in what's known as the corrupt bargain, where he sort of does this deal to get a majority of the electoral votes out of the House of Representatives. Mm. And Andrew Jackson is furious. He says, how could the will of the people, which suggested that I was the most popular in the United States, be thwarted in the House of Representatives? And he went around the country for four years proclaiming that message, comes back in 1828 and wins decisively in a following election. So there was – there have been these moments where the, the – uh, where these – somewhat bizarre election procedures lead to a result where the person with the most votes doesn't win. But at the same time, it becomes sort of a mantra or a rallying cry for future political campaigns rather than creating instability in the existing sort of presidential regime. Right. Holy cow, man, this is um, this, this, this is going to make great TV. <laughs> well, absolutely. I think the TV networks will enjoy it. I think they will, too. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Derek Muller, um, a professor at Pepperdine University, who also uh, wrote the article, The Electoral College Could Still Stop Trump Even If He Wins the Popular Vote. We are doing a little uh, a little civics class here, a little uh, poli-sci 101 about the Electoral College. We'll take a break. More with Derek Muller when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The Electoral College, it could still stop one of the presidential candidates from winning. Even if that person wins the popular vote. And uh, joining us on the phone is Derek Muller. Derek Muller is a professor, associate professor of law at Pepperdine School of Law. And um, he is a researcher and writer focusing on election law, particularly federalism and the role of the states. In the administration of elections, he also wrote a, an article that uh, was on the in the Washington Post. The Electoral College could still stop Trump, even if he wins the popular vote. Derek, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. And teaching us what's all about uh, the Electoral College. Now, explain to us why the founding fathers felt the need to, to, to do this, to put the Electoral College together. I mean, we always hear it's, I guess, to protect the small states. Is that true? Well, that, that ends up being one of the reasons later on. Um, originally, the founders, they, they weren't sure how to elect the president. They thought, well, maybe we should have a popular vote of all the people. But, you know, at the founding, democracy was still a relatively new idea, and they weren't sure that was the best way of going about it. Others thought, well, maybe it should be the executive comes from Congress, that Congress gets together and votes for the president. They didn't really like that idea either. Maybe the legislatures should do it. They didn't really like that either. So. They came up with this process where it sort of combined all of them. It would be left to the state legislatures to decide how the electors should be picked. 
And so the electors would be an indirect way of choosing the president. So maybe the people could vote for those electors. But the electors, in the end, they hoped would be dispassionate individuals who would have a chance to deliberate and contemplate with one another and decide who the executive should be. Um, But at the end of the day, we saw in the first couple of elections, everybody wanted George Washington. And then there arose a number of political parties and factions, and this is John Adams and the Federalists against Thomas Jefferson. And all of a sudden, we see sort of a breakdown of this notion that the electors are going to be dispassionate individuals who are going to reflect upon who the best president is going to be. And instead, the electors become sort of uh, the, these pledged delegates who are Federalists or they're uh, Democratic Republicans or they're Whigs or something like that. So originally at the at the outset it thought, well, maybe we'll be able to sort of cool down the passions of direct democracy. And then a little bit later on we see that maybe the election of the president is going to look fairly similar to how we elect other individuals through in, in a fairly direct process. Does it – I mean it's interesting because this year it, it seems like it might actually have a purpose. Um, but uh, it, it almost seemed like we were outgrowing it. Were we were we outgrowing the need for this? I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is kind of outgrowing their need for a superdelegate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that also is creating a lot of tension as well. Is is a is an electorate is an electoral uh, college member the same as a superdelegate? Uh, in some senses, they are. Yeah, they, the, the, the superdelegates for the Democratic Party are simply uh, the existing elected representatives who get to uh, vote for a uh, presidential nominee regardless of any primary, regardless of any caucus. Hmm. Um, so theoretically, in the primaries, we're electing delegates to the convention. And so there is sort of an indirect process there as well, right? The yeah. delegates can yeah. vote at the convention, and they might not vote for the person that they're supposed to. Now, a lot of states have a rule in place that says if you're pledged to support a candidate, you have to vote for that candidate on the first right. ballot or the second ballot or the third ballot. Um, so there is, again, a kind of indirect process there. Superdelegates are even further removed from the process because they're not even elected. Mm. They, are, they are not pledged to anybody, and their support can go to anyone. So you know, we, we have these sort of indirect mechanisms in the United States still. Right? Um, most of our legislation happens indirectly. Our legislators pass the laws, not us. Um, but at the same time, there is a sense for a lot of us, and I think you hear this you know, from the Sanders campaign or you heard it from the Trump campaign for an extended period of time, that there's something intuitively right that if you have this sort of groundswell of support, that should be expressed in, hmm. in who wins the election. Right. And um, uh, to the idea of dispassion, right, and being dispassionate, these people are probably even more passionate <laughs> right, the electoral because they're they are in the know, but they, I guess That's we're right. assuming they're more pro pro United States. What's the best decision for the whole country? Right. So the what's going to happen in these states is each candidate, you know, so Hillary Clinton presumably in one, and Donald Trump presumably in the other camp. They're going to go to each state and they're going to say, here's our slate of electors. That is, in Utah, here are the six people who I'd like to be electors if I'm elected president. So already, there's a huge filtering mechanism there, right? They are people who are presumably not just loyal to the party, but loyal to them individually. 
Um, and so it, 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 there's not a high likelihood that these folks are going to somehow be dispassionate. Right? Right. They are designed to be passionate, loyal supporters of the candidate. And that's an appointee, really. I mean, right? That's so it's kind of a perk. Yes, it is. Absolutely. They're often um, party faithful, uh, occasionally donors, things like yeah. that today. They are significant. So the Constitution says you can't be an officer, so you can't be a, an elected official. Um, but other than that, it's sort of open as to who else might serve as an elector. And this is really your wheelhouse because it seems like what this does tell us is a lot of the power still would reside in at the state level. It does, yes. So the state legislatures have enormous power and influence in deciding how this process should look. Um, so most states have what we call a winner-take-all. So whoever gets the most votes in the state, they get all of the electors. But you know, uh, Nebraska and Maine have divided their uh, electors into congressional districts. And if you win a congressional district, you get one elector. And you win the statewide vote, you get two electors, like your two senators. Huh. So, so states have this sort of influence to kind of draw lines if they wanted to. They could award them proportionately and say, you know, in Utah, if you get two-thirds of the vote, you get four of the six electors. And if you get one-third of the vote, you get two of the six electors. But a lot of states have sort of fallen in line with the people vote as sort of the popular vote. They will vote for their electors. We're going to have these pledges in place that the electors are going to support the candidate they want. And it's going to be winner take all because that's the way for our state to sort of flex its muscle. Because if we have, let's say, 38 votes in Texas, isn't it more powerful to get 38 rather than just 22 or 21? Right, or right. Like that? Is, what, what do you think is the likelihood that this will be used this year? I think it's a pretty low likelihood. <laughs> I think the fact that state legislatures can do it uh, or that presidential electors may defect is a very different question from whether they will. And so, mm-hmm. you know, writing this piece and thinking about these issues, I, I like to think about what is legally authorized and what people can do and what the Constitution was designed for. But at the same time, and I think, you know, we, we've talked about this and you were alluding to this earlier, we get a little uncomfortable about this notion that maybe the third place vote getter, right, is going to win the presidency. Right. Maybe somebody who doesn't get the most votes wins. And I think that's a very significant um, sort of piece of rhetoric out there that really worries legislatures who, who do view themselves as sort of caretakers of the popular, popular uh, desires. Hmm. And there's also the blue wall issue, it seems like, where Democrats just electoral, electorally, they, they've got – it seems like a little easier path to get enough electoral votes because they're not going to all of the smaller states. They're playing all of the large coasts. Yeah, so once you factor – if you think that – uh, let's see, California and Illinois and New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts are pretty reliably Democratic states. Um, you know, that's well over 100 electoral votes right, right. there, right? And it gets you actually pretty close to 200. Um, so the, the, there are small states that tend to be more Democratic, Delaware or Rhode Island or Connecticut, right? uh, Vermont, and so there, there is actually a little bit of a divide on the smaller states, but there's no question that I think most of the largest states are reliably democratic, and that creates a little bit of this imbalance for the electoral college. Some of the fastest growing states in the South uh, and in the Mountain West, like Utah and Texas, uh, those states are clearly uh, leaning Republican, and mm-hmm. the fastest growing regions of the country are are 
an advantage to Republicans. At the same time, they have to grow a lot faster than they are right yeah, now right. in order to give them the kind of support that Democrats have now. It's uh, I think it's a fascinating um, piece. And w- what would you just say to the to the average voter that? Um, so, so just so that you know, in January we're not like, oh, what a ripoff! <laughs> like they're stealing the election. I mean, part of this is just being informed, I guess. The idea of the electoral college changing it seems near impossible, right? Yes, I think that's right. I, I mean, yeah. So nothing is going to. We're not going to amend the constitution by November, right? <laughs> to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, at the same time, people need to recognize that we have had we've had elections that have been sent to the House. We've had elections where the person who gets the most popular votes doesn't win the Electoral College. We've had elections where electors vote for somebody that the people of that state did not support. Uh, so we've had all of these things that have occurred in our history, and we've survived. Yeah. So people will look back and say, oh, but the game is rigged, or there's something in the process that just doesn't make any sense. But So I think being informed and understanding that these are features in the process that we have worked through before, and that even if they crop up again, we will be able to work through it again. We can handle it. Yes. Derek Muller, thank you so much, and keep up the great work there at Pepperdine. Thank you so much. By the way, prettiest campus on earth, I think. Um, beautiful stuff. Seriously, they just get to go look out over the Pacific Ocean and just soak it up in Malibu. In fact, I'll be there in July, not to brag. <laughs> Uh, We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, Appreciate Derek Muller joining us. Electoral College 101. It's here to stay, folks, so you may as well use it to your advantage. Or just get involved. Understand it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, great insight from our professor at Pepperdine on the Electoral College. Uh, if you remember, and I'll never forget it, uh, I was teaching a workshop, went to bed with George Bush, George W. Bush, um, leading the race against, his, you know, Al Gore. Woke up that morning, hadn't been decided. Hanging chads, the whole fiasco. Do you remember? I mean, I remember days. It was just hanging out there, just hanging and waiting. And oh, and Gore had won the popular vote, but now it looks like that rascal George is going to steal the election by stealing Florida. And uh, it was interesting. And then I'd go teach a leadership course. And as I was teaching a bunch of leaders about democracy, it it's also interesting to see how the passions would get, you know, pushed up and all of a sudden people are saying all these things by passion. And we learned that the Electoral College was designed to have dispassionate people making these decisions. Is there any way, honestly, you could be dispassionate? No. I mean, the, you're you're going to have a bias and you're going to carry a bias. People are biased. And so – one of the reasons um, I, I bring this up is we talk about freedom. We talk about, you know, everybody has rights and choices. But freedom ain't free, folks. Freedom ain't free. And as we're coming up on Memorial Day, we all ought to remember that. 
these rights that we all take so gladly and that we all exercise so strongly were basically forged on the backs of a lot of people. And the system's not perfect, but as Dr. Uh, Mueller taught us, it's, it is, uh, it's, it's been pretty consistent. And the country can handle it. The country can handle a little discord. It can also handle you know, an, an upset of events. But in the end, uh, with all of that we're seeing going on with you know people protesting and then turning into riots and people getting hurt and people getting arrested just to protest, you have the right to protest. But there's also, with all freedom, a responsibility. And it seems like a lot of people want the benefits of the right to free speech without being taking on the other rights of responsibility for what you say and how you say it. And I think that's candidates as well as protesters. So if, if we're going to truly claim to be a free country, then you have to exercise other rights or responsibilities. With every free right, there is a responsibility that's inherent as well. And we need to teach our kids that as well. It's not – the kids just can't you know, have no consequence in life. The consequences are going to come by the choices. The choices are what make us or break us. It's one thing to want to go protest. It's another thing to choose to make it violent. So we got to watch out. And I know you don't have a problem with this, but sometimes you do, right? Just in your own rhetoric or in your social media. So wherever you have influence, please, will you just be responsible you can be mad. You can not like what people are saying. Then with the power and, and you know the rights you do have, use your voice to go share the message that you do like. But you don't have to do it in a demeaning, mean way that incites more problems. At some point, we will never succeed more than our ability to be responsible for, um, for what's going on in our lives and our choices. Our candidates are here because of choices we've all made, right? Not just because they work the system. We have got us here as a country. So let's start owning it and not just blaming everybody else. Um, Anyway, a little coach's corner for you to start the day. We'll take a break, folks. Next hour, going to continue the discussion. We will be getting into uh, the science of attachment, apparently 60% of the millennials are detached. We'll be talking about attachment and how to keep love when you're detached. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. This is the show where... Uh, you know, we give you the information you need to make it through life. You didn't get a blueprint. You didn't get a handbook when you were born. So you got to figure it out. So we bring you the latest and greatest research, the studies, the information, the things that make you human. And then some things that don't. And then we laugh at some parts of us. And then we just, you know, move on. And then we'll give you some Donald Trump news. 
A little bit of everything to help you get through the day. Again, the goal is to help you see the good in the world and to help you live and love and learn and, and lead. Basic, basic goal of the show. Welcome back. Dr. Uh, Amir Levine will be joining us in a few moments and talking about attachment theory. Um, a lot of people we know and have found out in some recent research about millennials, about 60% of millennials have an attachment issue, an attachment disorder, let's say. Back in my day, 40% of my age group, I'm 47 years old, 40% of us had attachment issues, meaning we found it harder to attach in uh, in our relationships. So you might become either an anxiously attached person where you're always needing somebody to, okay, where are you? Why aren't you here? I need you here. You got to get here versus detach. Some of us are avoidant and we just detach from the people we love. And they're finding out it's the root cause of many, many, many marriage and relationship issues. So we will be talking about that in a few moments. Um, also today, some more headlines and, uh, of course, the news. And who better to bring it to us than Terry South with the latest headlines. Terry, what's going on? Lost in some of the uh, chaos, I guess, in Albuquerque last night. Republican Donald Trump and Democrat Hillary Clinton won their respective primaries in Washington state. Oh, yeah. Wow. I was unaware there was Is a primary. Is that going on? Yeah, it's still happening. But uh, Trump gets delegates for its victory, not Hillary Clinton. The Democrats allocated their delegates in March, which Bernie Sanders won. So they held a primary, but it didn't really amount to anything. Democracy. Deborah Wasserman Schultz. <laughs> it's got to be Deborah. Trump won at least 27 of the 44 delegates of the state, putting him just 41 delegates shy of clinching the Republican nomination. Wow. A formality since he's the only candidate left in the race. It's Trump, happening. Trump and Clinton are expected to wrap up their nominations on June 7th, the next and final slate of contests in the 2016 primary season. That'll be California. Mm. Finally, California feels like they matter. Well, I mean, in the electoral process, Bernie's really trying to make that matter. Hillary Clinton appeared to be taking a three pronged approach when it comes to Donald Trump while campaigning in Los Angeles on Tuesday. The Democratic presidential frontrunner delivered roughly 40 minutes of remarks in which he hit the Republican presidential candidate on everything from his business record to his taxes to his foreign policy to his ego and his personality. The attacks got the to the core of what is likely to be Clinton's general election Trump strategy, cast Trump as a bad businessman, go after him for being dangerous on foreign policy, paint him as not being an easy person to work with, meanwhile ignoring his attacks against her and her husband. Hmm. What do you think? Think that'll work? <sighs> sure. Okay. In an interview with the Washington Post, Donald Trump said he pledged uh, that he pledged $1 million to the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation. The Veterans Organization. Uh, this comes months after Trump promised that amount from, of that money on January 28th. Oh, yeah. So he promised it on the 28th of January. Right. Uh-huh. They just paid it yesterday. Well, you got, it takes time. So the media has been asking him, like, so you made this promise in January. You're going to follow through with that? And, oh, yeah, yeah. We're it's working coming. on that. We're, uh, it, we're, they're printing the big check right now? Yeah. So finally, the mo- actually, the money went out on Monday. They uh, they announced it Tuesday. He also pushed back on his own campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Earlier has claimed that the money is full spent or something. It's already all gone. There's a whole turmoil thing going on in the, the Trump between yeah. uh, the new guy that came in that looks like the uh, – the casino pit boss, and then Lewandowski, <laughs> yeah. the former campaign manager. There's like factions in the office. You can they've, sense some tension. There's a report that they've actually split the office to keep people away from each other. Really? Yeah. 
Well, this is going to be an exciting race. But it's it's there's a certain side of Politico.com that just turns into kind of the gossipy stuff, right? From DC, but it's you know fun. <laughs> Depends what side you're on. The uh, Securities and Exchange Commission and the FBI are looking into the finances of Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee. This side of Politico, he alleged uh, the alleged vice president shortlister for. Donald Trump reportedly failed to report millions of dollars in assets and income before the uh, the Wall Street Journal reported it. Corker is chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has denied wrongdoing, and a spokesperson in his office blamed a watchdog organization for firing a complaint or filing a complaint against his office with the SEC. Wow! So he's possibly could you know be vetting for a, a vice presidential slot, and now the FBI is investigating him. Here we go. And something some people might find. I don't think anybody wants to be on these lists anymore. No. Because the minute you do, it's You're like, a target. Yeah, stuff's going to start happening. After a decade of forcing users to get creative within its strict 140-character limit, Twitter announced uh, the now-ingrained length limit is getting ever so slightly more lenient. Really? They won't count photographs and videos against your 140 characters. Wow. Before you type in 140 characters, yeah. attach a photo, and then you got to go back and take half half of what you wrote out because of the photo. Now they're, they're trying to make a way so that people don't feel so constrained when they use their service. Yeah. You but don't want it, people stressing out using your Twitter service. People are going to Facebook and places so they can just write as much as they want, get all their thoughts out, and not have to worry about 140 characters. But at the same time, there's a whole group of people who like that 140 characters because it keeps you succinct. Right. Makes right. it quick. Well, and I think that was a great service. As as somebody that reads a lot of letters about marriages that are complicated, <laughs> I like I think we should all use Twitter to email our marriage therapist. Right. It forces you to think. Think it out. Think it out. Um the New York Times has uh has an article by Tina Rosenberg that's titled, Have You Ever Been Arrested? Check Here. In the United States, only those that are convicted of the most serious crimes get life sentences, but everyone who enters the criminal justice system can be marked for life. Apparently 70 million people have felonies. Is that possible? Well, yeah. That's more people than... um, I mean, think of that. That's that's more people than have college education. It's a big deal. Yeah, there's a lot of people. So now you can, apparently can go. Uh, you can search it in this article and start searching if you have a criminal record. <laughs> Seventy million Americans have a criminal record. Same number of Americans who have college degrees. Roughly twenty million of those have felony convictions. So, fifty million of them are uh, misdemeanors. Wouldn't you know? You would think you'd know. But I mean, some of them were – you were under the influence. Oh, OK. Maybe you wouldn't remember. That's yeah. what it is. Like do you remember that one time Ben had that problem that we had to bail him out of mm-hmm. um, literally? But he just over – he had overeaten too much ice cream and sugar. Yeah, the ice cream intoxication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens. I didn't know that you could I, – I heard that you could basically kill yourself by drinking too much water. Yes. I had no idea you could do the same thing with ice cream. It's an underrepresented problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I try and bring more awareness. attention to it and, and awareness. It's really about awareness. Is this your platform? Um, I'm not running for anything right now. But running if I for were Miss, to, if, Miss Provo, Utah, <laughs> Ben wasn't. If I were to run for something, this would be my platform. It sounds like a great one. I, and I just want people to know. Well, I appreciate it. 
Um, <laughs> if you're out there and you uh, if you want to show any love or concern about Ben, what's the name of your theme, your platform? Um, don't eat too much ice cream awareness. I- ice cream hurts too. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I mean, we're still sort of working on ice it. Ice cream's but. not always sweet. Ice cream kills. Ice yeah. cream can yeah. With sprinkles, but not all the yeah. Ice cream awareness. We're killing you with sprinkles. That's good. Okay. Yeah, our, our focus group is meeting today, so we're not completely sure. Yeah, I can't make it is. today. Are just so you know, I'm not. I can't. I, I'm busy. He's, he's got a thing. You're I, the only other guy. Yeah. So just talk to Terry about it. Terry, I've got, I've got a thing. We have two things. Uh, but uh, just take one of the other producers. Yeah, yeah they, they all said no. Okay, Don's available. Check with Don. He, he only wants to talk to me if we have a problem. What I'll do? Well, <laughs> I'm sure we'll be seeing Don then in a few minutes. <laughs> just give him some time. What else, Terry? A possible mystery has been solved. What? Now it's Gawker Media oh, has yeah. solved this mystery. Gawker's on it. Now Gawker has a checkered current, yeah, and past background, mm-hmm. but. This might have some legs to it. What? They went, uh, as it says here, Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein on Donald Trump's hairdo. Oh, boy. Inside sources, French patents, multiple lawsuits, achieved what archived websites, and more have led to this uh, site to perhaps the first plausible answer to the riddle of Donald Trump's hair. The answer is essentially a $60,000 weave. The trail starts with a customer of Ivari International telling Gawker that Trump is also a client. Ivari International specializes in microcylinder intervention. These microcylinders are made up of strands of donor hair that mingle with your own hair after being attached with a thread and metal clamps. In Ew. 2007, the treatment cost 60 grand and required nearly monthly maintenance for up to $3,000 a visit. <laughs> Strengthening the source claims in 1997, the Ivari International website listed Trump Towers as its New York City location. Once more, it claimed to be located on the 25th floor or the home to Trump's offices and apparently nothing else. While Ivari International continues to exist, its only public location is in Paris, though it appears difficult or too impossible to actually get an appointment. Gawker has said it's possible the whole enterprise is kept afloat by mega client Trump. Ivari International and its founder, Edward Ivari, have been the subject of multiple lawsuits. In one, a judge called the results of the microcylinder intervention exorbitantly priced hair pieces and the functional equivalent of wigs. Another alleged Ivari basically, another uh, alleged that Ivari basically had a client's hair, held his hair hostage while demanding loans between $250,000 and $1 million for variously highly suspicious and illegal <laughs> operations. <laughs> I don't believe any of this. I think it's all his hair, and it's just he so just saying, loves the. They're saying it's a wig. Yeah, but they have it's, clamped it's a weave. With, a weave, but it's like clamped with metal clamps sure. to his skull or something. Women have been doing this for years. Yes, but that's what Trump says. It's his. Yeah, and people are like, no, nah, that's a weave. There's no, no way. I think it's more about he just wants to sell hats. <laughs> is that what it is? Mm-hmm. That is <laughs> so. I mean, you know, it's something, right? Yeah. It's just. We, everybody's been compensating one way or another. You either compensate because you lack hair, so you try to comb it some way, right. or you wear a weave, right? Or the rest of us are just helping others compensate by like pretending like we don't notice it, right? And you, you just kind of look away. 
avert the eye. Yeah. Oh, it's sad. But the problem is with all, and I'm learning this as I'm getting older because I'm starting to gray. Yes. Uh, are you gonna are you gonna darken in a dignified way? They tell me. Well, yeah. I mean, men that go gray are distinguished. Mm-hmm. Women that go gray depends Ooh. on the person. Yeah, they don't like that. Socially, it, we have this thing in society about gray hair and women. Yeah, which I don't think is. But well, gray is actually coming in. It's, yeah. it's into vogue now. Young women are like letting their hair go gray when they instead of coloring it. Yeah. Which I can't believe we're talking about this. There's this great interview that ESPN did. They have a whole series called 30 for 30. Yeah. And they interviewed Donald Trump several years ago. Trump was the head of the World Football League. Yeah. Right? So they went and talked to him about how he basically ruined it. And they had this interview. And they went in and set up all the cameras. And then they, as they get all the cameras set up. Trump's assistant comes in and looks around at how it's set up and where the chair, where Trump's going to sit. And she goes, you're going to have to move all these cameras. She doesn't ask, will you? She says, move them because you can't shoot him from a certain side. He wants it only shot from the other side. And so the director, as Trump came in, took a handheld camera and like did a whole 360 shot around him and realized that he doesn't want you shooting from where he combs from and to. So where the, where the, uh-huh. hair, where the hairdo starts, don't film him. You only film him from where the hairdo ends on did the you, other side you, of you his head. You call it a hairdo? That's what he calls it. It was a, it was an interesting interview about Inter- it's yeah. supposed to be about football, but it just turned into Trump because he's just so that's the deal off the wall. Sometimes. It becomes an issue because everyone knows it's an issue, and then you keep a secret. See, the key to this is you can't keep a secret. No, the minute that's why you can't dye your hair. The minute as a guy, yeah. the minute you're dyeing your hair, you're eventually going to have to stop. Otherwise, you're going to be a 90 year old with like jet black hair. <laughs> that looks normal. And that just looks creepy. <laughs> Then, but you know what? You will get all the ladies in the old folks' home. My Jerry, your hair looks so dark and rich. Well, thank you. I uh, I comb it every morning and then I put it on. Anywho, it's hair, folks. It's hair. Oh, isn't it hard? It becomes such a big part of our identity. Anyway, so many people have too much, and so many have too little. Life again, roulette. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the new science of adult attachment and love. It might explain why you and your spouse fight, why you seem to disconnect, and maybe not as close as you really want to be. Maybe it's also why you're having a hard time finding somebody. Stick with us, folks. Love 101. It's up next. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there are so many nuances. When it comes to love and dating, there's limitless amounts of backgrounds, preferences, personal issues that people experience that we have to sort through, right, to find that one right person. Is there any way to navigate each unique relationship? How do we do that? Well, science suggests that it actually might be an understanding a little bit more about your attachment style. Here to explain that is the co-author of the book, Attached, Dr. Amir Levine. And we welcome him to the show to walk us through this issue. Dr. Amir Levine, welcome to the show. 
Hi, uh, great to be here. It's uh, Levine, by the way. Oh, sorry, Levine. Yeah, they told me that. Sorry about that, Dr. Levine. It, uh, this, this attachment issue, I'm telling you, I've had people come into my office as, just as early as just yesterday, uh, or as recent as yesterday, talking about attachment and explain it to us because it, it's, it seems like kind of a newer idea, but it really has been the root of problems for a long time. So yeah, so apparently there is, um, there's, um, a science behind how we behave in close relationships. And that science, it really started uh, these attachment styles that were first found in children and how children uh, behave with parents. But then in the 80s, two scientists thought that maybe they can actually, that we also behave in our close relationships, um, also according to those attachment styles. And they did some of this research and found that indeed that was the case. And that opened up the whole science of 20 years of uh, of the attachment and how that translates in close to close romantic relationships. So, <laughs> what I did with my co-author, we basically took that science, which was just like something that was uh, used in academia, and we translated it into a tool that you can use in everyday life. That's great. Now, talk talk about because uh, the book in, in your book. You, you um, this this concept of attached is broken down in the theory, I guess, as well as in your book, into into three different categories, right? Is it is it three ca- categories? Right. Walk so us through those categories. Styles. Yeah. Right. So three attachment styles. There's anxious, avoidant, and secure, and it all has to do with how comfortable you feel with intimacy and closeness, but also how easily you detect threats in your relationship and uh, your certain belief system. So. If you are, if you love intimacy and closeness, but you're also very sensitive to potential threat in your relationship, and you have this idea that you're going to be, you're going to love more than others will love you, and that people are going to leave you, uh, then you have an anxious attachment style. And you, but if you're warm and loving, and you love to be close and you love to be intimate, yet you don't have a very sensitive uh, radar system. Like a lot of things go over your head, and it doesn't really, many, things don't really bother you that much. Then you have a secure attachment style. And then people who have an avoidant attachment style are people who also want to be in a relationship. But once they get close to someone, they start to feel very uncomfortable with too much closeness, and they find ways to keep their partners at arm's length. Uh, And they have this belief system that they have to sort of stay uh, independent and self-sufficient, and so they push their other partner away. So these are the three attachment hmm. styles, and I don't know if you can, but this, uh, there's two, two of these attachment styles, when they get together, that's really a recipe of a lot of um, drama, and that's the anxious and the avoidant, because one wants a lot of intimacy and closeness, the other one wants to minimize, and one is hmm. very sensitive to a lot of potential threat, the other one instills a lot of potential threat in their relationship. So that's kind of like these two attachment styles are not a good match to one another usually. And then, um, but I guess too, if you had a secure attachment uh, person in the marriage or the relationship and an anxious, you, is it possible, uh, Dr. Levine, that the anxious one could end up driving the secure one away? So that's a great question. So first of all, I have to tell you also that the good news is that about uh, the vast majority of people in the population are secure. About 54% of people in the population are secure. About 25% are avoidant and 20% are anxious. So the good news is that the majority are secure. And 
really in the, in the process of writing the book, and we interviewed a lot of secure people, we've learned to fall in love with the security in this world. We like to call them the supermates of evolution because um, the amazing thing that usually happens is actually the opposite, that is that you summon secure, both anxious and avoidant, they will teach you how to become more secure. Because it's almost like having a built-in uh, relationship therapist in their relationship, and they will sort of show you how um, all these different tools of how to become more secure. Uh, so that's why for people who are dating, um, and we have a questionnaire in the book and also on our website, com that you can do uh, so you can tell what attachment style you are, but also you can tell, you can learn to tell what attachment styles other people are. So it takes a little practice in the beginning, uh, but we find that it's crucial because the research says that people who end up being in a relationship with someone secure are more satisfied over time, or happier over time. Is uh, do, do you have any research on the percentage of people that are too secures? the two secure attachment styles that are married or together? Oh, so a lot, there's a lot of, um, obviously there's a lot of uh, marriage between secure people. There's also people like secure who actually end up with avoidant and, and secure end up with anxious. I think the one really interesting piece of, um, of um, uh, statistic, I mean, the one interesting data is that you would think that two avoidants would be perfect for one another. Right. Both of them don't want to, like really value their independence. Both of them really don't want the other person to uh, rely on them too much. Uh, but the the really the strangest thing is that the two avoidants hardly ever end up being together in a relationship. That's the only combination that hardly ever happens, and no one knows exactly why. But I would think that there just simply lacks the glue to keep two people together. Hmm. It's is um, is is it changeable. So can we learn uh, the healthier attachment style and eventually change? Or is this something that just stays with us and we learn to cope with? Right. So that's part of the reason why me uh, and my co-author decided to write this book, because attachment styles are changeable. Uh, and in fact, um, like 25% of people can change their attachment style in the course of four years. And so we found it very promising that it's not something that stays stable. And the easiest way to change your attachment style is actually is to sort of meet someone secure. Because, again, they will teach you how to uh, – they, they're very, very good in, in relationships, and they will teach you how to sort of behave in a more secure way. And the thing is, one of the things that we did in the book is that we so – after interviewing – sort of really doing interviews with dozens of people who are secure – so we've come up, we've seen that there is a method to their secret. And we sort of, we write that, we've sort of written out a lot of different uh, techniques that they use. How are they so secure? What is the secret behind their success? Hmm. You know, uh, I think this is really powerful. I work a lot with couples in their communication, and I can see these, these styles uh, perpetuate one of the big problems I see a lot, which is kind of the pursuer withdrawer, the demand withdrawer pattern of fight or flight. And I mean, we think that if you're married to somebody that that is uh, an avoidant attachment, you might be wondering why are they, why don't they engage? Why do they always run away? Why why are they not there? And then 
you can just you might keep pushing and that keeps pushing them farther away. It's a it's an interesting uh, dilemma, isn't it? Yes. So that uh, particular uh, what you're describing, that particular that's something that we like to call the anxious avoidant trap. Yeah. Like someone, uh, the avoidant who keeps sort of the, he has he or she, by the way, it's not always a man. It's like both men and women are can be avoidant, have this world belief that they have to be self-reliant and under and independent. And then when you come and you make um, demands of them, or in, in, like in a in a in a fight or in a, in an argument. So a fight and an argument is really an opportunity to become very close if uh, all couples fight. Um, but the thing is, can you, the resolution of a fight can like really carry the opportunity of actually becoming closer. And that's something that's very hard for them to tolerate. So they sort of like clam up uh, and they don't really know hmm. how to sort of engage. And also they don't like the closeness that it brings. So there are little ways in which you can kind of like find um little ways in which you can sort of find a way to communicate things to someone who's avoidant without making them feel that they're cornered into like this closeness place where they don't really, they can't handle. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I have to say for someone who is secure and that's something that both anxious and avoidant don't really understand. And that's something that secure people understand. It's almost like they, it's for them, it's second nature. Um, and that's really the basis of the uh, why their relationships are so good. They have I like to call it the happy wife, happy life philosophy. They have this innate understanding that your couple's well-being uh, is also your well-being. Right. And people don't understand that that's, and it's just not a metaphor. It's not only just psychological well-being because uh, studies show that people uh, that are in better relationships uh, it's even if they if they had a high blood pressure, they, it was actually easier to treat it, and they they were much more um, they were less sick. Or there's even one study that showed that if you're in a good relationship and you get a cut, it will heal faster hmm. than if you're in a bad relationship. So it's not just the psychological well-being; it's also really physiological. I think you have to understand how much we're dependent on one another. The dependency is not an option. It always happens once we get attached to one another, then we can understand how important it is uh, to keep um, that to keep the other partner happy and to sort of listen to what his needs or her needs are. Yeah. It's uh boy, it 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 really is a, a it's essential. It's a core ingredient, it sounds like too. Let's um, take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Amir Lavine and uh, we're talking about his book Attached the new science of adult attachment and how it can help you find and keep love. Um, powerful insights, folks, into relationships and into um, love. Also, remember, you can go to his website, attachthebook.com, attachthebook.com, and you can go take a test and see uh, and decipher your own attachment style as well as your spouse's um, interesting resources for you. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion, find out what we can do. Once we find out our, our attachment style and uh, what are some other tricks of the trade that uh, might help us get through and, and better learn to, to want to attach and know how to attach to the people we love. Stick with us. Helping you live longer and love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking about attachment disorders or attachment, uh, you know, character or styles, and everybody seems to to have a different type of uh, ability to connect in to um, somebody in a intimate, loving re- relationship. Those uh, styles are avoidant, um, uh, anxious, or secure. And the book Attached uh, is is written by our co-author, and he's joining us today, Dr. Amir Levine. He also is a uh, graduated from the residency program at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University, and is an adult child and adolescent psychiatrist and neuroscientist. Dr. Levine, we welcome you back to the show. Hi, great to be here. Great to have you. Talk about, you have a, a great story um, about, uh, is it Tamara or Tamara uh, in your in your book? Yeah, Tamara. Tamara, talk to us about that story. I really like this story because I really think it exemplifies a lot of things that a lot of people really identify with. Uh, this is someone that who is like really very successful. She's like this uh, high-powered New York uh person has a great job has a lot of friends and really does it really really well um in every aspect of her life except for um what happened is that she met this guy who completely she completely fell in love with who had these promises of like you know we can do things together you don't have to be alone and she sort of fell head over hill uh, only to find out later on that he all of a, at the same time sort of became distant and pushed her away, and there were a lot of mixed messages, and she became completely fixated on the relationship, and um, and it took a while for her to sort of be able to let that go and get over that relationship. Um, and I really think it's like people have to understand that I love that story because people underestimate the power of attachment. And we don't understand what attachment is all about and really what it is. It's a, it's a very powerful safety mechanism that we have as humans because as humans we feel safety. We think, well, if we have a lot of money in the bank, if we have like a nice home, a roof over our head, that's how we feel secure. But that's not how we feel secure. Uh, we really feel secure through other people. Um, and um, so for us, knowing if we have a stable someone that we can count on, that's how we feel secure. So hmm. basically what happened with her is that she found someone, but that person was not reliable, and she completely unraveled. Um, but then I think the story has a happy ending because afterwards she finally broke off. She kind of sort of, could have, sort of got herself together again. And then sort of knowing about attachment, she ended up meeting, finding someone secure. Um, and now she actually is having, like, she has, I think she already has, like, two kids and um, her life is very, very different. Hmm. But it really brings to the fore the importance of understanding attachment and the attachment style when you're dating to find the right person for you and to also save you a lot of heartache because that pain is real pain. People really, the pain of, 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 um, of losing someone like that is, is awful. And, and you can, I guess that's why it's so important to know what your style is because if you've had a hard relationship or two, you might it might even be more, more natural for you to avoid uh, wanting to connect and find somebody. Except, you also bring up in your book that you know that need to have a close relationship is embedded in our genes. It's part of us, right? It's completely part of us. So we have this system 
in our in our brain that sort of built it's built it's designed to pick someone up from the someone out from the crowd and make them special and unique and once that happens we sort of really it's not so easy to make them ununique <laughs> it's actually it's really a biological process uh, and it's designed to make us stick by one another no matter what and every once in a while I see like a something in the paper about the power of attachment and it really sort of moved me there was another I think uh, a few years ago there was this uh, boat that sank in the Mediterranean and there's this uh, woman who said uh, my husband was there when the only one life vest and he gave me his life vest that's the last time I saw him mm. and that's kind of like the powers and then he they, he sacrificed himself for her and that is the power of attachment it makes us so close to the point that we're almost like one unit yeah uh, and that we will really go out of our way to protect the other person so but the thing is is that we have to understand that not all um, not everybody will actually be a good match and there is a science sort of to really help us navigate who will be a good match for us and who won't be and a lot of people don't know that so they go oh if we like the same football uh, team or if we like the same baseball if we like sports they look for different signs to sort of tell them whether this is the right match for them or not hmm. it has nothing to do with all of these things right not with the either like common hobbies it has nothing to do with that it has something to do with a certain belief system about intimacy and closeness and how we sort of function in that realm and that all has to do with the attachment style yeah it's it's interesting because that is kind of the deeper issue right the deeper the uh like just the burr under the saddle kind of idea that it's you can shine the saddle you can you know loosen the saddle whatever it is you got to get down to the actual attachment issue if you really want to improve some of this stuff is is there um how do we where does the attachment style come from where do we pick up this anxiousness or this avoidant behavior and versus those that picked up secure. The secure. So these attachment styles, they also they like to call them working models. Um, so these are basically a set of um, it's a set it's a belief system that we develop uh, about the world. Um, usually, it's things that sort of we aggregate from since childhood and moving on. It's not always the same attachment style that we have in childhood that remains, but it's more about how we see the world and the people in the world. So if we have this uh, working model that the world is a dangerous place and that people will fail us and that people, we can't really trust people um, and that we're always going to want more closeness that they want, then that's more of an anxious um, working model. Hmm. And that sort of like came around because along um, in life, we... This is uh, the experiences that we've had. So that's sort of like a built-in over a period of time. And if we have the working model, also the, the work that the people are not to be trusted, that we have to only count on ourselves, uh, that um, we must remain self-sufficient and independent, and we can't rely on other people to make us feel better, that's the um, avoidant working model. Hmm. Um, and again, that comes from a lot of disappointments along uh, over the years uh, from people. Um, so it's actually very similar to the anxious working model. Only here, it's like, okay, we're going to try 
the anxious is like we're going to try and we're going to sort of really press hard so they will be available to us. And the avoidance has already given up. It's like I'm not going to try. I'm just yeah. going to uh, count only on myself. And then the secure working model is like the world is good. People are good. We can trust everybody. If something bad happens, they didn't really mean it. So there's like a very different sort of assumption about the uh, um, life and people in the world. Wow. Um, and that very and basic say, assumption I mean, sets it all. It's, yeah, it, it's that it sets completely. it all up. Completely. But I have to say, I mean, so the secure assumption is good as long as uh, their basic assumption is true, as long as the world is a good place and it's a safe place. Um, but if it's not, there is something to be said about the other attachment styles. And that's why I would like to really emphasize that these are not uh, pathological, the other attachment styles. It's a, it's a variation on a theme. And sometimes it is good to be hypervigilant about the world. Right. And sometimes it does, actually does pay off to, um, to sort of like be more um, attentive to what's going on and to be more alert. Uh-huh. So it's really, and that's actually some of the studies have found that people who are anxious have a more a greater ability in reader, reading other people's facial cues and detecting changes in people's mood and small things that happen in the world. They're very, very good in uh, tracking things. Yeah, so so it's not just a curse. It's it also has an upside, oh, right? Definitely not just a curse. And I, I always like to sort of give this example of this uh, woman who does have an anxious attachment style. And back in 2008, she woke up, she woke up at 6 a.m. and sort of shook her husband, who was like lying next to her, and said, "I had a really, I have a really bad feeling. You have to sell all of our stocks." And so she wouldn't let so wouldn't let it go until he sold all of their stocks. And then, uh, like a few weeks later, the market came crashing down. Oh, wow! Um, the people, yeah. So we still have there is there is a benefit to having that very sort of alert, sensitive detecting system. In your in your book, do um, I guess you walk through this, but you also give some some, some solutions, some tools for. What we can do, I mean, it's and it's complicated because it depends who you are and what your equation is and how you relate to each other. But I guess I, one of the things I, I I have seen when I deal with people that have attachment uh, disorders or issues is it, it becomes hopeless. They feel a lot of times, but I know your book has a lot of hope about this. Oh, definitely, because I think we find first of all, a lot of people don't know about these different attachment styles. Um, and so it's, it's a very, it's a whole different way of looking at relationships and looking at yourself in relationship. And by the way, it's not only romantic relationships. Uh, a lot of uh, the same um, uh, sort of themes can come up in other close relationships with really good friends and also at work. Hmm. So it really helps to understand different dynamics uh, of close relationships. And then it also, I think, helps, especially in our society, that puts a lot of uh, emphasis about individualism and being self-sufficient. It really sort of um, sort of evens the score. It actually explains to people our biology, and that once we, like I said before, like once we get to uh, once we get attached to someone, dependency is always there. It's, it's just biological. That's how we're hardwired. We have no choice in the matter. Right. You can try to sort of like try to ignore it, but it's just gonna. Uh, come back and sort of um, and hit us in the head because um, 
So once we understand that, then we can deal with a lot of the things. And actually, a lot of the time, even for people who are avoidant, it's actually much easier than people think. And it's kind of like one of the, so I, I think I told you about one of the, uh, like in the book, basically, I think we spent half of the, the latter half of the book telling people different strategies of becoming more secure. Um, so one of the things that I told you is that they have this, uh, I call it the happy wife, happy life philosophy. They basically know that your their partner's well-being is uh, their well-being, and they will, uh, and that it's their responsibility to keep them happy. So once you know that, that's actually one of the easiest ways to make life much easier for yourself because the, that's, and that's what I like to call that uh, turning, uh, putting out uh, a small flame before it becomes an office, uh, a, a forest fire. Yeah. And you know that someone, um, I'll give you a little example. Let's say um, your um, significant other is uh, going to a business trip um, they're in a cab going to uh, JFK, and you get very um, um, anxious when they're going. It's raining. It's stormy. They know that you get anxious. You try to call them. You text them. They're on a business trip. They're very busy. They're like, oh, man, this guy's so needy. They just start hit ignore, go straight into voicemail. You get really upset. Uh, by the time they get to their destination and they call you at night, you start a like, huge fight uh, because you're unsettled and you don't know where they are. And that's... Uh, and you don't sleep well, they don't sleep well. It's really a disaster. Mm. But what if they knew that you get anxious and they just like, sent you a small text in the cab heading off to the airport and then just before taking off, taking off, and then another text uh, landed. So by the time they get to their destination and call you, it goes through to voicemail. You're already asleep. Yeah. And everyone is happy. So it's just like... That's cool. You have, it's just, it doesn't... Yeah, right? I mean, that, that's the way... That's love, right? That's that's where we understand somebody and we serve them their way. Exactly, and it doesn't take a lot of work. Yeah, this is good, man. This is uh, it's so important. We appreciate you, uh, Doctor Amir Levine. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your book. Attached. I mean, we need it. We need the help. Thank Again, you very much. You bet. Go, everybody. Go to the book. Attach. Go to the website. Attachedthebook.com. Attachedthebook.com. And you can take their compatibility test. You can find out what you are. You can find out what your partner is, and and learn just like uh, Doctor Amir was teaching us how to how to bridge that gap. Get out of yourself and love your partner their way. And and also you can also learn what you need to become more strong, more independent, less afraid. Powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, this attachment issue, it's everywhere. It's, it's with us. We're carrying it. I, more and more, I'm seeing it with my own clients that I work with. And I guess the key is, I mean, in the, in the romantic world of falling in love, getting married, you know, having babies, we, we just think that love is just this feeling. We just feel it. But, um, more and more, I'm finding that love is uh, it, it's almost revisited every few years in a marriage. At first, it's a, it's a very chemical 
kind of love. Eventually, it becomes kind of a more empathic love. And uh, then as life goes on and we, we're getting older and things aren't working right, it, it might become more of a, a charitable love. So is love chemistry or charity? And I think in the end, yeah, it's both. The reality, though, is charity is going to serve you a lot longer than chemistry will, right? There's going to be a day that it won't all be about getting your chemistry on. It's going to be about just helping your partner through cancer or raising a family together and not losing your cool. So maybe if we could just start to have discussions about love being not getting what you want from your partner, but love is giving what they need. And the more we give what they need, the more we feel like we're in love with them. I think the more you love, the more you feel love, right? Just like the more you study, the more learning you get. We can't just assume it's a feeling because the minute you do that, you set yourself up. And that's why people come to me and they tell me they've fallen out of love. But we don't fall out of love with you know grandma because we keep serving grandma. We fall out of love with people we no longer serve or people we think you know are out to get us. And if this attachment style is uh, is impacting you, go do something about it. Go figure out what your style is. Do you tend to avoid and just want to get away? Do you tend to be too anxious about the relationship and notice that you drive people away? Um, anyway, interesting, interesting insights. I think for all of us, I know I've learned a lot and uh, again, figure out yourself and then learn to love your partner unconditionally. Grow the charity, not just the chemistry. I promise in the end, charity will carry your relationship a lot farther than chemistry ever could. We'll take a break, folks. A key to living happier and uh, stronger, more loving relationships. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your life coach, your guide on the side, walking you through life and all of its intricacies. Oh, there's just so much to figure out. Last hour, we talked about your attachment style, how you how you love or not. Today, we'll be talking about living well and spending less. How do you live the good life? By the way, what is the good life? And not go into debt trying to find it. Some people seriously indentured now because they have been looking for the good life. Buy things you have cash for. Yes, with a credit card. Exactly. Well, then you pay off the credit card each month. Yeah. You don't let it roll over. Yeah. So what if I don't have cash now, hmm. but I have cash in two days? Then wait for two days. No, then you go get a loan. No. I, I like that idea. No, 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 no. See, Ben, we've been, ben and I, we've been working on this. Because he's like, 
when he has his degree, he knows he's going to probably earn $35,000. So why not spend it now? He'll have a degree in three years. I'm not going to really need the money then. Right. Yeah, exactly. He'll be a millionaire, an ice cream millionaire. Right. I I, I see a lot of pitfalls here, but yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Your life, it's your choice to drive it into the wall if you want to. Oh, he can't drive. He doesn't have a car. Well, it was kind of a figurative. I I will have a car once. You'll have two cars. Yeah. You'll have fast. (laughs) Why not? It's all free money, right? I, I will have the money sooner or later. Well, of course you will. And we all know that graduating from college makes you wealthier and yeah. richer than everybody that Guar- didn't. Guaranteed employment. Excellent. Or you could just sit home and watch YouTube. Mm. I'd rather buy things. That's a good point. Yeah. The neat thing about buying things, like even online, is that you're not sitting around watching cat videos, wasting your time. No. As you said earlier, you're not watching Chewbacca videos either. (laughs) (laughs) This is the greatest. Okay. So I've got to let you in on this great little secret. If you, and I'm sure some don't know about it, there's 140 million people that do. Plus another three on the hijacked video someone recorded off Facebook and put it on YouTube. Yeah. And then James Corden did another thing that's got about four million views yeah. on it with her. So I think a lot of people know about this. Well, I think you think they do. Nah. But I'm going to bet right now as I, I tell I, this. I knew enough that I avoided it for the whole period of time until you made me I know. watch it. You were hating it. But so there's a <laughs> there, all you have to do is go Google Chewbacca mom. If you Go Google Chewbacca Mom. That's all you'll need to find. But it's a, it is it is the funniest video. Uh, Terry disagrees. He'd rather go watch something about Marvel comics. Blah blah blah. Or, the po- or politics. Nerd alert. Exactly. It is Geek Day. But uh, this is just a cute housewife. Uh, kind of I don't know. Forty year old housewife finds a Chewbacca mask at uh, Kohl's, the, the the store. Probably buys it with Kohl's cash. Well, the 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 Kohl's cash that they gave her, yeah. Because on the video she mentions or she bought it, she and it turns into this huge viral campaign for Kohl's without their involvement whatsoever. Just because she's like, look what I bought at Kohl's. She's so excited she can't contain herself, and she puts up her camera phone and starts filming this little viral message about her wearing a Chewbacca mask, and um, when she opens her mouth, it makes the Chewbacca growl whatever that sound is yeah. but it also moves as she as she talks the the ma- the mask actually talks with her so it looks like chewbacca's talking Not but the really. lady it really totally does mm. and then the lady can't stop laughing and it is it is hilarious and contagious and it creates a really good feeling this is what i was trying to teach terry mm. this creates a really good feeling and it brings in joy and your endorphins fire, and it's just hilarious. So we're going to play a little bit of it. Uh, Terry, you might want to sit down because this might bring a spirit of joy to your life. Right. And that just could distraction. prove fatal. It's just the distraction. It's, he thinks it's a distraction. It's not a distraction. It's a CIA plot to so it, distract way, you is, from what's It is important. a distraction. It is. But it's actually a distraction that brings out a lovely, good, beautiful 
thing. Congress is probably doing something shady, but we all miss it because of the woman wearing a Chewbacca mask. Said the cynic who hates (laughs) Chewbacca and a 40-year-old woman. Let's uh, listen to Candace Payne as she's putting on her Chewbacca mask. Here we go. So, yes! Now watch when my mouth actually moves. (laughs) That's not me making that noise, it's the mask! Here, listen. (laughs) Here she goes. She can't stop. <laughs> Terry's just wilting. All right. And it goes on. It's four minutes of her laughing uncontrollably. It's about two minutes. No, it's it four. It takes her two minutes I know, to get out of the video box. Is four minutes. But see, do, do you just hear the cynicism? She that, doesn't laugh for just, two minutes. He's such a cynic. Half of just, it, she's like, oh, I can't get it out of the box. Hold on. Just let the light in. Why? Let it in, Terry. Let it in. It will only make you feel more joy. Just got to put on sunglasses. After all the darkness you've experienced, let the joy in. <laughs> what darkness? All the other news you like to follow. Oh, okay. Um, Speaking a- of. Anyway, we will be posting that on our Twitter feed. That is, really? That is the – and we're going like to – Like it hasn't been out there and no, people know about this. We're posting it. The we're best part it. is it's Terry's job to post it on the Twitter feed. I love feed. it. Yeah. We're going to change – we're going to bring spirit to Terry and, and change that dark soul. And let him just feel just, happiness. Just let it be dark. I do feel happiness. But how beautiful is it that this woman, Candace right. Payne, out of the nowhere, reason, finds the, peace and joy The in reason life. this works is because it's genuine. The reason it's I so don't genuine. like it yeah. is because, yes, a few people like it, but then everyone watches it and talks about it because it's the thing to do. No, but it's not the thing it's to do. It's the lion it brings... in Africa for the week. No, you know, the no, people it doesn't. No. never been there. It's I know, great. But that, you know? I know, but that, but that's different because that doesn't bring this peace. When you watch this, <laughs> you just feel virtue and good. It's good. Oh, it's so good. We're trying to bring you the good. It's that whole dress thing. Like everyone had to have an opinion of what color that dress was. No, like, but again, that didn't bring joy and good. This Some brings people joy. did just because they were involved in the internet no, that, thing of different. the week. This you is know? different. This is different. This is just virtue. This is just a cute mom. By the way, then Coles really talked her up, gave her a bunch of stuff. She She's now been on with James Corden. Yeah, this is the rest of it. Yeah, it That's just cool. rolls out. Everyone wants her on the show so they can hop on the wagon. Because virtue is contagious. Yeah, that's the reason. <laughs> so good. Okay, anyway, uh, what else is going on in the headlines, Terry? What else do we need to worry about? Last night, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump won the Washington State primaries. Trump, 41 delegates, votes away from the Republican nomination. Hillary Clinton was in California holding rallies going after Donald Trump's business record, his taxes, foreign policy, and his ego-slash-personality. Trump was in New Mexico holding a rally that included what local officials are calling a riot, which included tear gas, protesters lighting Make America Great Again t-shirts on fire, and police officers in riot gear. You know, a Trump rally. The State Department has found fault in the way Hillary Clinton and other former secretaries of state managed their electronic communications while in office. This from the Associated Press. The copy of the report by the agency's inspector general cited longstanding systemic weakness in relation to email and computer information security. The secretaries were slow to recognize and manage effective, effectively the legal requirements and cybersecurity risks associated with electronic data communications, mm. particularly those at risk, uh, risks pertaining to the most senior leadership. Wow. So they're just saying they all messed up. Interesting. Hmm. 
But, but some are hoping Hillary messed up more than others. Well, there's still time. We'll have to see. Late BMX legend Dave Mira has become the first action sports athlete to be diagnosed with CTE, mm, according oh to ESPN. Yeah. The uh, brain disease is linked to dementia and depression and is thought to be caused by repeated trauma to the head. Mira died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound February 4th. His wife, Lauren, told ESPN that in the months and weeks leading up to his death, he wasn't himself, becoming oddly distant or widely or wildly emotional. Huh. Man, that's, that sounds like you. No. I don't, yeah. I, I don't have a head trauma? No, not, not recently. He blocks the emotion. Yes. In an interview with The Guardian, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida says he was pretty pleased with his performance in the 2016 Republican presidential race. Despite suspending his campaign in March after losing his home state, Rubio told The Guardian that uh, in the interview out on Tuesday that in any other election cycle, his campaign would have been solid. A lot of times it feels almost I, I goes it feels almost like the guy who built this really strong building Rubio said of the GOP contest and it was in the I was in the right place it was in the right way these buildings have been built and then it got hit by a category 5 hurricane. Oh boy. Yeah. That hurricane was Donald Trump. He goes it's not that we lost it's that Donald Trump won. Yeah. I came in like a Another life ruined by Donald Trump. He, I'm sure uh, he's also Ted's also upset that he yeah on stage accidentally yeah you can't use you, the old elbow you can't pop your wife with the elbow in the face three while times while hugging your father while trying to hug your father by the way who also killed Kennedy no, oh, no he he killed uh, he was Lee a, Harvey he was in a photograph with Lee Harvey mm. which could have led to something mm-hmm. but we don't know Whoa, we don't know come on do you uh, allegedly you, you have a grandchild yes I do. Cutest little be. girl. Mm. What is the approach? Do you let the, 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 the do your kids let the baby cry? This is your daughter. Yeah. Your daughter's yeah. daughter. Right. Does they let the baby cry or do you go in and comfort it, the child? Well, I think it depends. You know, like if she yells, Ow! They run in. Really? Now she's four months old. She doesn't <laughs> yell anything. Um, I think it – honestly, I think it depends. If they're putting her to sleep, they might – I think actually she's young enough. They go get her and they soothe her and put her back to sleep, put her back to sleep. But there's a point where you just – you got to do something, right? Well, it says while it may be stressful or at least guilt-inducing for new parents, letting the baby cry it out before bed might actually be less stressful for the infant according to a new study – published this week in Pediatrics. Researchers studied 43 babies from 6 to 16 months of age whose parents said they were having sleep problems. Uh, One-third of the parents were told to use gradual, uh, graduated extinction, also known as the uh, Ferber me- method, which is what let them cry, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they let their babies cry for longer and longer periods alone at bedtime before coming in to offer comfort. Another third were told to use bedtime fading, in which a baby's bedtime is moved later and later to make the infant sleepier. The final third of parents didn't do anything, any kind of sleep training, so they were kind of the placebo, I guess. The study found babies who were put to bed using bedtime fading fell asleep about 12 minutes faster than babies in the control group, and babies in the graduated extinction, or, you know, let them cry group, mm-hmm. uh, fell asleep 15 minutes faster while sleeping longer and not waking as often. They exhausted themselves. Wow. Was there a, uh, was there a category of babies with Benadryl on board? <laughs> but that's a way to help too. Whatever. <laughs> that's heard. an unhealthy way to help, which is interesting because um, there used to be a belief: just let them cry. Yeah, let them cry. Don't go in there. 
And then there was another belief that, no, you just keep going in there and you don't ever let your child ever suffer any pain. And isn't it ironic that this research comes out while we just finished an entire section or 30-minute interview about attachment disorder? Mm -hmm. And attachment disorders go up. So how we – I mean, you know, if we just let our kids cry all the time, it might not teach them that the world is safe Mm. or that there are people around you that will help you. Mm -hmm. But then you can overdo it. And make it so that your children will never move out of your home and they'll sleep in your bed with you till you're 80. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> Which, Ben, we've been meaning to talk to you about. You've got to talk to your parents and sleep in another room now. Yeah, so your, count, right. your, your idea would be the happy medium. Yeah. Maybe comfort the child but not yeah. over-comfort the child. And I mean I like that fading idea. But go in, show reinforcement. We love you. We're here. No, you're good. You're good. And then leave. And after you've done that 33 times. Zonk. Pull out the Benadryl, goner. Nice. That's what we did. My kid would cry and you'd go in after a while and you're okay, you're okay. Yeah. He'd so calm down and eventually But it seems like kids, asleep. they need to know that they're safe. Right. Right. Or that at least that you're not just going to abandon them, which this is what's weird is we've been hearing from professionals for, what, 100 years of how to do this and yet we still have a lot of people that are messed up. You know what we found? What? This thing called a sleepy sheep. Pardon? A sleepy sheep. A, a sleepy sheep? Yes. What is that? You, oh, you know what? I actually think I have had a sleepy sheep. Uh-huh. Um, you tell me. Is, is this what it is? No. Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship. Oh. No, no. It's supposed to be a soothing <laughs> sound. Okay. Oh, so more like this? Me, 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 me. No, more of like a mother's heartbeat. Oh. Less beaker from the Muppets. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I get it. So, yeah, so you press the button and it just goes – it makes this sort of heartbeat sort of noise. Boom, 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 and we've used that with boom, boom. my my child since he was born and he's like five. And you go to leave. He goes, hey, I need the sheep on. I'm like, you turn it on. You didn't have it. He goes, okay. Reaches over, turns it on and goes to sleep. Mom, we're out of batteries. Can I put more batteries in my sleepy <laughs> He's going to have this thing at 30. His wife's going to hate that. We'll have to explain that. to his wife like, uh, well, we gave to him when he was a kid. What's that sound? That's my wife. That's my mother's heartbeat. <laughs> Do I have to sleep with you if you have to listen to your mother's heartbeat all night? Just if you love me. That is messed up. Your son is on the road to just crazy. Well. Anyway, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, we have got to get into this uh, new book with um, Ruth Sukup, uh, Sukup, Living Well, Spending Less, 12 Secrets of a Good Life. How can you live well, live the good life, but not go broke doing it? Hmm, this ought to be interesting. Stick with us, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. The Good Life. It's something we all want, right? But does it ever seem like groceries and our bills, housework, and everyday errands get in the way? Well, what if those everyday obstacles actually are the good life? Maybe it all comes down to how you manage them. Ruth Sukup, author of Living Well, Spending Less, 12 Secrets of the Good Life, joins us now to uh, give us some financial and life advice on how to find the good life and to do it affordably. Ruth Sukup, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. 
Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great to great to have you. And this, I mean, really, we're we're all in pursuit of the good life. How how do you define the good life? Well, you know, to me, the good life is just simply a life rich with all the things that matter most. So, faith, friends, family, creativity, hospitality, those really are the things that make a good life. Oh, that, I really I agree. That's it. It's and it seems like, you know, a lot of those are free. Yeah. Well, you know, that is the interesting thing. We all we often equate the good life with physical or with material things, but the reality is that the best things in life are usually free. Oh, and yet we just still go to the store and just keep buying stuff. <laughs> and then we accumulate, yeah. don't we? And then that accumulation <laughs> creates stress and then you need a bigger house to hold all your the things you've accumulated. Absolutely. Yes, that is definitely true. And there's, you know, there's a culture that we live in that is is so steeped in consumerism that we almost don't know that we don't even know we're we're steeped in consumerism anymore. It's just become the norm. And every day there's every moment almost there's a new message saying buy more if you have this. This is going to be the thing that makes you happy. This is going to be the thing that fills you up. And and we buy into it again and again and again. Mm. What are some of your tricks? I mean, I know we've actually got kind of two things we uh, I wanted to talk about with you, Ruth. Uh, my producer, Leanna, got a hold of your book and has not yet released it. I mean, I've got it in my hand, but <laughs> it has 100,000 uh, Post-it notes from her. She's she's loving everything you're learning about kind of living the frugal kind of life. But um, also give us some ways uh, – to, to find contentment, how what what are the tricks to uh, to live well but spend less? Well, you know, really, contentment is is probably the best thing that you can do to start living a life of spending less. I think when it comes down to just learning to ha- how to love and appreciate the things that you already have instead of constantly wanting more, and that's not. A change that happens in your head. It's a change that happens in your heart. So being really, truly, I guess, honest with yourself and about the the changes that need to happen. And then, you know, for me, I, it's prayer. It come, a lot of the heart changes come through prayer. Hmm. And actually being engaged with a higher power. Absolutely. In fact, there's really great... Focusing on gratitude is super important as well. Well, too, yeah, because then all of a sudden you can see what you've got. I mean, isn't it funny that a lot of times we don't even... We're not even grateful for what we got because, ah, oh, the other one, you know, had three more features that would have been better. So maybe I right. ought to just... But instead, gratitude and that connection to the higher power. Um, we've had a lot of researchers on recently just talking about spirituality. If you can find spirituality and connection, whatever your faith system, it it will at least, it'll probably deliver joy and contentment, whatever your surroundings. Very, very true. It's, and it's and it's so easy to forget. And, and, you know, I had a reminder of this just yesterday, um, yesterday afternoon, I was working away and, and I needed to find a file and it was a really important file. It was like a keynote file, which is like the Mac version of PowerPoint. And I was sure that I had it in my computer and I could not find that file anywhere. It was completely gone. And it was like that, that file had taken me probably, I don't know, a month to create. It was 170 slides 
huge file, <sighs> completely gone. And I was just, my, I, my heart sank. I felt sick. I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew if I had to recreate it, it was going to be hours and hours of work. And so, you know, my husband was like, calm down. It's okay. It's going to be okay. And, and you just have to, you know, work and find it. And finally, you know, after about three hours of trying to figure something out, we finally figured out a solution. And it turns out I had duplicated that file and to edit something else. And I was able to restore it and get it back. And then I was like, and I was happy, but... My husband pointed out, he's like, you don't seem very happy. He's like, you're, you know, your gratitude for this situation should at least equal your misery when you thought that you had lost. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, true, huh? You should have been ecstatic. Really good point. Like, I should be, and it was because I was completely moved on to the next thing. As soon as I got what I wanted, <laughs> instead of, like, stopping to feel really grateful that I had got that back, I just, you know, and so every day, you, sometimes you just need those people in your life who can, who can point it out. And oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what spouses are for, just to... Focus on the obvious. Thanks, honey. Um, it's so yeah. true, though, isn't it? Talk about you. You bring up another point about finding your sweet spot. Yes, yes. I think once you can figure out living it, how to live in the sweet spot, I think that that is one of the best ways to really find find your right place in life. You know, it's it your best life and the good life is finding the sweet spot. And I de- define the sweet spot as that place where your greatest passion and your greatest talents intersect. So mm. it's where you can't wait to jump out of bed in the morning because you are doing the thing that you not only love, but that you're really good at too. And when you can find that for your life, it's an amazing thing. And that's where if you can spend, the more time you can spend in that spot, the sweet spot, the better off you'll be. Oh, but yeah. Sometimes that can take a while. Uh-huh. <laughs> But two, what's so great about it is you're, I guess you're in flow is what we call it in psychology. You're in that state of optimal experience. You're offering your best stuff, which keeps you at this heightened sense of fulfillment. It's, it's, there's power there. Oh, very, very much so. That's cool. And I mean, a lot of people almost think they can't afford to be where their passions are or their talents are, right? Because I'm a teacher and I don't, I, I need to make more money than teaching, but if you're in your sweet spot, you'll probably love it that you'll, you know, maybe you'll get raises or maybe, you know, receive more opportunities, maybe move up the ladder faster. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I think a lot of times we get scared to branch out and scared to try new things and scared scared to really pursue pursue what we could be great at because we're worried that we might fail. And so that's where, you know, we, I, I always like to encourage people that failure is not fatal at all. And in the book, I share a story uh, of how I went to law school and ended up dropping out. I, had, I thought for my whole life almost I was going to go to law school. Like ever since I was a little kid, that, that was what I was going for. And I went to college and I studied political science, all with the intention of going to law school. And I finally got there, got into a great school, was there, thought for sure, and like within the first semester, I was completely miserable, like absolutely hated it, hated everything <laughs> about it. And again, it was my husband who was the one who just saw my whole demeanor just changed in that over the course of that first semester. Like it just went from, you know, I was so excited to start to just being every day with misery. And he was the one who said, you know, you don't have to do this. Right, you like you can quit if you want to. It's okay, and I that was like a revelation for me because 
until that moment, I would have never considered quitting. I'm not a quitter. Like, yeah. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it even if it kills me. And he and he said, I was like, really? That's okay. You won't be mad? Because he had packed up, you know, quit his job, packed up his whole life to move cross-country with me so I could go to law school. And we, um, he said, yeah, no, it's okay. I think you need to, you know, this clearly isn't the right thing for you. And I ended up dropping out and hey. quitting. And it was so scary, and yet, and it took several years to find find my sweet spot after that. It wasn't like I quit law school, and the next day I was like, okay, now I know what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. It, was, it took a long time, but it was, I would have never found my sweet spot had I not been brave enough to quit yeah. the path that I was on. Yeah, sometimes you gotta you got to take that hard turn right and and that hard turn might lead you right to your sweet spot and and sometimes what we thought was our sweet spot when we were eight may not turn out to be that when we're <laughs> 38 uh we're talking with ruth sukup we're going to take a break come back and continue discussing her book living well spending less and uh, an article she wrote um that is titled uh, 12 ways to live well and spend less interesting insights um from ruth sukup stick with us folks helping you see the good in the world we'll be right back Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is uh, Ruth Sukup. She's the author of the book Living Well, Spending Less, and she's walking us through 12 secrets of a good life. Um, really, we won't have time to get to all of them, but they're, these are just basic ideas, right, Ruth? But they're basic ideas that pay huge dividends and really don't cost much. Exactly. And, and and that's what I one of them one of your points was decrease your stuff to increase your joy. Our stuff costs us a lot of money, and it doesn't necessarily equal joy. That's very true. In fact, my my follow up book to Living Well, Spending Less, which just came out um, about a month and a half ago, is called Unstuffed, and it is all about decluttering your life, decluttering your home, mind, and soul, and getting rid of that. And it's sort of just Take, you know, t- picks up where living well, spending less left off and really focuses on how our lives got so filled with stuff in the first place and what we can do about it. Hmm. Unstuffed. That sounds like a great idea. I've been stuffed my <laughs> whole life. Um, one of the things uh, you point out, too, is that we need to learn to realize that uh, you need to spend less money than you think you do. What do you mean by that? Yes. Well, you know, I think a lot of times we spend mindlessly without even realizing what we're spending our money on. And it's, and that's not true for everyone. You know, if, if people who are really struggling and living pay, paycheck to paycheck and struggling to get by tend to actually be a lot more careful with their money. It's the people who are in the in-between zone where maybe they're not wealthy, but they're not, they're not struggling to get by. They make a healthy income and, and should be just fine. But the problem is that there's all these little everyday expenses that come up that don't seem like very much each in themselves, but when they all add up, it ends up being a big problem. One that we don't even realize until sometimes it's too late. All of a sudden we find ourselves 
in massive amounts of debt or just not having any money at the end of the month. <laughs> it's so true. It's like we're lulled to sleep, right, by just the hum of life that we don't actually pay attention to what we're doing. We've all we've done it driving where you'll drive for 20 minutes to get somewhere and you don't even remember driving. We kind of oh, yeah, live our whole life sure. that way. For sure. Or, you know, we're late. We're running late in the morning and we don't have time to, to make breakfast. So we stop at McDonald's or we stop at Starbucks drive through and grab our $5 coffee and our $7 donut to go with it. And, you know, that's OK once in a while. But when that starts to happen every day, even though those little charges don't seem like a lot for themselves, by the end of the month, they have added up to a significant expense. Hmm. And when you, you know, multiply that times two of you and two, two adults in a family, and then if you're, what are, your kids are doing, like, it really is easy to just watch the money slip away without ever thinking about it. So one of the things that I really recommend for people who just need to kind of reset their habits and reset their budget is to go on a month-long, a month-long spending freeze. That's a good idea. And just absolutely cut out every single non-essential expense for for a whole month and see how it goes. We have a challenge at Living Well Spending Less that we that's called 31 Days of Living Well and Spending Zero. And over the years, we've actually had over 100,000 people um, take the challenge. Wow. But it's one month where you just, and we've had lots of people take it more than once even, but if you just there are activities to keep you busy every single day. Um, so, you know, we focus a lot on figuring out how to make meals out of the stuff we already have on hand and keeping your hmm. keeping your home organized because it's a lot of times the reason that we go out and spend money is because we don't want to be at home because our yeah. home is a mess. So instead of cleaning the house, we go to Walmart and we buy more cleaning supplies or organizing supplies. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, there's lots of different ways where we – we spend money that we don't need to because we are avoiding the things that we should actually be doing. That's, I mean, that's the thing. Like when I, when you mention like stopping by at a Starbucks, for some people that is the little treat of the day and that is the joy of their life, the moment that they have fulfilled themselves. And, um, <laughs> and I sit there and I think I'll, that. I'll raise my hand to that one. Do you know I, what I mean? I, <laughs> and it feels like that. But you're still just driving home and then you get home to your family and you're like, ugh. Look at this kitchen. The kitchen's a mess. I'm going to just go out and get, you know, Chick-fil-A now. And we then we pick up Chick-fil-A. But it's it's almost like we're medicating with consumption instead of sitting in the space and turning the space into something that brings us the joy or and or the relationships bring us the joy. Very, very true. In fact, that's one of the secrets in living well spending less is a clean house is a happy house. And, and it probably seems a little odd to think about spending less by keeping your house clean. But the truth is that when our house is a disaster, we avoid it as much as possible. And every time you leave your house, you're going to start spending money because there's almost or there are very few things that you can do outside of your house that don't end up costing you. Right. And, and then you have to keep working to pay for that mentality when, like you said, take a month off. You've had 100,000 people do the month challenge. Mm-hmm. Did anyone die? Nobody died, and people have had the most amazing results. It's really incredible. We get letters from people who were able to fund their wedding from taking a month off. Oh, wow. We have gotten letters from people who 
were able to save like $5,000 an entire month or pay off their mortgage or, you know, there's just been some amazing, amazing success stories because people, you know, and it, and it really depends, again, on where you're starting from. This is not a income level problem. It ha- You know, spending issues happen whether you're making $200,000 a year or $20,000 a year. And you can be poor and be making a huge amount of money if you're not managing it well. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're just going to dig yourself deeper in the hole. Well, uh, Ruth Sukup, I think it's a, a great thing you're after here. And the website, livingwellspendingless.com, is also a, just a great resource for everybody out there in listener land because they, they've got a million tools and, and information, the blog. They've got a wonderful resources there. We appreciate you, Ruth. Keep up the great work, and we'll have to have you back on your new book, um, Unstuffed. That sounds like a big hit. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about decluttering. Awesome. Thank you so much. Ruth Sukup, go check out the website, livingwellspendingless.com, or uh, her books, Unstuffed and Living Well, Spending Less. They're on the shelves. You can get them Barnes & Noble. Get them everywhere, folks. Good stuff. We're trying to help you, you know, organize your life and get – Get used to some of the easy stuff, right? We don't have to just keep complicating it to distracting us from the fact that we're we're sliding. It's not working. Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, celebrating lollipops and Geek Pride Day. If you are a geek, nerd alert! Today's your day. Get a lollipop out, share. <laughs> don't share it with a friend, but uh, kick back and come visit us and some of our friends down at BYU Sports Nation. Let's go down, mosey down there, and uh, see what the guys are doing there. Hello, Spencer and Jerem. What's up, brothers? Hello, Dr. Matthew. How are you? We're good. When I hear that song... Yeah, what do you think? I think I would like to experience a few days in the 1950s and 60s. Oh, wouldn't that be great? I would love to travel through time. A poodle skirt? Just to have, you know, a week or two here and there. I think it would be fascinating. I do too. And that uh, generation fascinates me. Don't you think that you would stand out as a, a kind of a bebopper, a... Boy, you could start an incredible boy band, maybe with a bigger band, you know, maybe. Certainly. I had a dream the other night that I went back like eight years and uh, I was hanging out with Stephen Curry, of all people, and his his family. And I was like, holy cow, like I know what happens to this guy and I could make a ton of money. It was the back (laughs) to the future thing where it's like, I know what happens here. Did you find out what happens in game um, five? Oh, boy. I led you astray, Matt, and I need to apologize. I really thought the Warriors would come out I and did play too. better in Game 4. I did, too. I think the whole Draymond Green incident really affected him mentally. Yeah. It but, also affected uh, the guy he kicked. Oh, man. Like, it it sparked something in Oklahoma City, and I think that Stephen Curry isn't fully healthy. Yeah, something's not right. Don't something you think? just seems a little bit off. Is, the Thunder are better, too. And the Thunder, yeah, the Thunder are on fire. <laughs> do they? Do, do the Thunder just have a longer reach than 
it seems like they're just outreaching. They're stuffing blocking and blocking. Think about this. The Thunder have two of the best five NBA players. Yeah, that's true. So is it really that shocking that they are doing this to Golden State? Yeah. They have two top five NBA players. Hey, answer me this. Would you rather have the winnings record that they have or get through this next round of playoffs? Get through the next round. At the end of the day, it's about how you perform in the playoffs. But if right? you're, let's, if, what, what if you're going to lose anyway? they won 73. Yeah. If they don't win the title, it's a disappointment. Yeah, that's true. It huh? is. It is totally. Here's the thing. Do you want, if it turns out to be Oklahoma City and Cleveland, which is what I think it will be. Yeah. I think ultimately it's going to be Oklahoma City and Cleveland. Those and are the two NBA compelling Bionics. cities. <laughs> Who do you want to win the NBA championship? Do you want to go with Believe Land? Mm. Cleveland, who has been to the finals in so many different things but have never won the big one? <sighs> or do you want Oklahoma City? I want OKC. They don't. Why? What Why if they? Well, what if, what, what? What professional national stage have they ever been on? Oklahoma City? Yeah. Uh, this is it. In sports, nothing. Pro- professionally, yep. nothing. This is the big dance. Like college sports, plenty. Oh, yeah, like the plenty. University of Oklahoma. Huge. Yeah. Right. But Cle- this Cleveland is. Cleveland needs, needs it, though. Cle- Cleveland does need a little kick. Well, we shouldn't use the word kick. Cleveland is searching for a title in any sport, kind of like the right. Chicago Cubs right. are looking for a World Series title for the first time since 1908. But see, OKC like reminds Chicago me of the Jazz. Do you remember the Jazz when Stockton and Malone, they get there? Oh, boy. It was just good they got there. Yeah, but it, it would have really been was. so great to win. Come on. But it was Jordan. That's so, true. So no one, no know, one discredits the Jazz run. Yeah. Because it was Jordan. They go, ah, it was Jordan, right? But, I mean, LeBron, I look at it, too. LeBron's already had his. No, he has to have more. Why? He, he needs one with Cleveland. He He's supposed to, to be the guy that gets one for his oh, hometown. I know. Come one. on. He needs two or three to cement his legacy. Right. If, it, if he only gets two, his career, unfortunately, I don't necessarily agree with the, the idea, will probably be underwhelming because he's the maybe the most unique player who's ever played the game. That's true. Except you, this he's year, not the best player ever. They were talking about Durant and um, what's his bucket, maybe being traded away from OKC, and then all of a sudden they take him to the finals. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Durant's going to be a free agent after this season. So the question was, is he going to is he going to go elsewhere? He'll go, I, he'll I go to Cleveland after this. I don't think. I think he stays. The Lakers want Durant. And the Lakers want DeMar DeRozan of the Toronto Raptors. Man, come on. Yeah, and that series is interesting, too. It's going at least six now. Toronto's at least made it a six-game series, whereas we thought that was going to be a four-game. We're the North! (laughs) We are the North. That's such a Canadian thing. We are the North. That's an interesting little tagline. Okay, They own a direction? Wow! Of course, they've nailed down the North. Um, Okay, I have got a a soundbite I have to play for you. And I need you to name – this is a little bit of a nerd alert. Nerd alert! I need you to name – you're going to hear some noise, and I need you to just name the character that is that is also being played in the noise. It's a weird introduction. Okay. And you got to – if you can, you got to tell me what this is all about. Okay? Here we go. <laughs> Did you guys see this? She's yeah. won the she's yeah. won the internet for the past three days. Yeah. You love it, don't you? Oh yeah. You can't get enough of it. Oh, I'm such a 
just <laughs> she's just so unaware. She's this so is a viral moment. <laughs> this incredible. But she's filming it, right? And she's but don't you just love her just she's just virtuous, kind, loving of good report, praiseworthy. We seek after these things. Exactly. And I love it. So we were showing that to Terry today, and Terry um, Terry turned into a curmudgeon because he said he felt this warm thing going on in his heart called love. And then he started talking down this great clip. <laughs> He's having a good time. <sighs> it's love. Oh, you guys. It reminds me, when I watch that, it's what I feel like when I watch BYU Sports Nation. That's pretty weird. I feel this. I feel, A, a need to laugh. And B, I feel a warming of my heart. Okay, we'll take it. It's not our goal per se, but we like it. <laughs> are you guys? St- are you guys still doing your show today? Yeah, we are doing our show. <laughs> well, what's on the show? <laughs> Nothing as good as we just talked about. Oh, really? Yeah, the Chewbacca lady is way better than anything we have. You know what? You guys could play it. Just play it. Just keep looping it. That's what we do on the show. It's hard to watch after the second time for me. Is it? Yeah. I'm like, no, okay. Does your heart get cold? And No. Okay. No, it's just it's just a lot. There is a lot happening in that video, and <laughs> <laughs> she's a little too excited about that Chewbacca mask. Oh, for me. I love it. Yeah, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> it's the fact that she's so excited that makes it funny. Yeah. You know? And she just – and then it's almost like every time she looks at the camera and sees herself, it gets funnier. <laughs> so what's on your show? Okay, that's going to try to talk. Point that. brought up by an ESPN college football insider, specific to the Big Twelve. Jake Trotter is the Big Twelve reporter. He said yesterday to the Deseret News publication here in Utah that it's Big Twelve or bust for BYU. Ooh. Now, what one? What does that even mean? Yeah. What does bust mean in that context? What is he going for? What kind of emotion does that incite across BYU sports nation? What do the fans think about that? How long is independent sustainable for BYU? Like, the state of the program is on topic today. Hmm. Wow. Plus what? Johnny Linehan, okay. the uh, Kiwi punter for the Cougars, and the new men's soccer head coach. They have a two-game win streak in the Premier Development League. They're a minor league team, the only college team in America in the Premier Development League, basically single-A soccer, if you will. Wow. Uh, Brandon Gilliam, he'll join us in the studio as well. And a double-A manager punts. The actual second base in minor league baseball, how that relates to BYU. What's the BYU connection? Hmm. Because <laughs> if it ain't got nothing to do with BYU, it ain't going to be discussed in the show. Most likely, yes. Unless it's the Chewbacca lady. Can you guys call Candace Payne? That's her name. She's the Chewbacca lady. Candace Payne. Yeah. I think it'd be great. I think she's a great guest. She's got, it, she's got that witch cackle. <laughs> totally. Totally. I just envision Mr. T having a... Candace! Candace Payne! <laughs> I pity the fool. I pity the Chewbacca man fool. <laughs> I pity the fool. Oh, my heavens. Prediction? What's happened? What's happened to us, you guys? What's the, what's the weather going to be like today, Spencer? Uh, 68 degrees. Pain! <laughs> Prediction? Pain. You guys. I love it. Do that on the show today, promise. Pain come from Northwest. Do, 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 do. By the way, the North team, who's the team of the North? We are the North. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> Manitoba. The uh, Toronto Raptors, eh? Hey, the Toronto. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, they got a good uh, basketball club up there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, Great, good, Jory. Or... Uh, yeah, Kyle Lowry's <laughs> playing some good ball up there, eh? <laughs> Okay, go do your show. Okay, we will. Have fun, well, gentlemen. Goodbye. A little later today. Huh? Wax on, wax okay. off. <laughs>
They're two wild and crazy guys. You can listen to them at BYU Sports Nation. Top of the hour. Get locked and loaded, folks. Sit back, get yourself a beverage. Buckle in for an hour of excitement. You can also go to BYU TV and watch all of the excitement as well. Oh, yes. Well, um, here's one for you. Uh, New York City, the New York Police Department says a melee that erupted at a charity football game between police and firefighters just shows that football is a competitive sport. Video of the aftermath of Sunday's game at Coney Island shows dozens of players brawling and yelling curses. Blood can be seen dripping down the face of one firefighter. The New York Police Department said in a statement Tuesday that the football uh, that football is a competitive sport, whether it's in the NFL Super Bowl or the annual NYPD FDNY challenge. The fire department did not immediately respond, um, which is normally followed by you know a story about the fire, but they were actually there stitching them their own people up. The departments have a history of brawling at charity sport events. Now, by the way, there goes the charity, right? And out comes the blood. Anyway, the police department did win Sunday's game 29 to 13, which is probably, I'm going to bet, the cause of some of the uh, melee. We will uh, now turn to our hero story of the day. As you know, on the show, we love to give you a great hero story to, to, to walk away with. This year's hero story is uh, about some good Samaritans that helped thwart a man trying to carjack a mom and her four-year-old son in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, several good Samaritans stepped in and helped uh, helped to uh, stop a man that tried to carjack a woman, Ronald Schischler Jr. of Grapeville, hopped into a van outside the store in Hempfield Township, about 25 miles east of Pittsburgh, on Thursday afternoon, and threatened to slit the driver's throat. State police said, "I had my four-year-old son with me, which all I kept, which is all I kept thinking about." This man is going to take me and take my son, Christina Goot said to KDKA-TV. This world is so sick, she said. Goots grabbed her steering wheel, screamed, grabbed a knife, and pushed uh, Skissler out of the car as he also was grabbed by a bystander. Witnesses said the man, Joseph Tanier of Jeanette, told uh, the station, I just opened the door and pulled the guy out of the car and threw him onto the ground and then uh, started screaming, he has a knife, he has a knife. Anyway, they got rid of the guy. For heaven's sakes, uh, Skissler then ran into a store, grabbed a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt, put it on to hold uh, to try to change his appearance, and tried to get away. Um, but uh, the, these bystanders held him until uh, the police arrived. So thank heavens there are good Samaritans out there, folks, and you are one of them. So please go look after each other. Go step in. Be willing to. Uh, be the change that needs to take place in the world. It can start somewhere. It may as well start with you. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. Watch after each other. We'll be back again tomorrow. Take care.